Welcome to the Change Africa podcast, where we bring you stories of inspiring individuals and thought leaders leading Africa's transformation. I'm your host, Isaac Kujurinu Abwa, and together with my co-host, Daniel Merki, we'll be exploring diverse perspectives, challenges, and opportunities for growth and development on the continent every week. Each episode, we delve into a different aspect of African life, featuring knowledgeable and engaging guests who provide unique insights and a fresh perspective on the issues affecting the continent across a wide range of topics from economics to culture and social issues. So whether you're already well-versed in African affairs or you're just starting to explore this fascinating and complex part of the world, the Change Africa podcast is an excellent resource for you. Sit back and enjoy another thought-provoking discussion that will inform and challenge you to expand your understanding of Africa. Today's guest is a stalwart defender against corruption in Africa. He's built himself as a one-man hurricane, waging kamikaze-style journalistic war on West Africa's most powerful individuals, organizations, and governments. There have been firestorms, controversies, awards, and inevitably an ongoing stint in exile. He started his journalism career as the founding writer on The Other News, Nigeria's first primetime political satire TV show, which will go on to record 2 million average weekly viewers. Presently, he is the founder of the West Africa Weekly, an attempt at managing and curating a publication of his own. His work has previously appeared on Al Jazeera, The African Report, Channels Television, Business Day, and CNN Africa. And his accolades are plenty. He was named the GRC and Anti-Financial Crime Reporter of the Year in 2021 and 2022 consecutively. And he was named the most outstanding young person in journalism at the 2022 Lagos Youth Awards. In the same year, he was named amongst the 100 most influential Africans of 2022 by New African Magazine. Following the publication of his debut nonfiction title, The Jungle, A Personal Journey with the Enfant Terrible of the Nigerian Journalism, he was named the 2023 Distinguished James Carey Fellow at the University of Cambridge. Ladies and gentlemen, let's welcome the man, the myth, the legend, David Hundain to the Change Africa podcast. You're welcome, David. Okay, so let's go. I want to understand where your passion for journalism came from. You went to the University of Hull. You studied under prestigious professors. You were an honored student in creative writing. Did you always wanted to become a journalist while you were growing up? Where did this passion start from? So um, I wouldn't necessarily call it a dream, but I've known since I was very young that I had a thing for, for writing. I think going back to when I was about 10 years old or something, that was the first time I ever wrote something that got any kind of acclaim. Then I, I won a, a national writing competition in Nigeria at age 12, when, in, that was in 2003. And then in 2006, at age 16, I came third in a global essay competition, which had over 6,000 entries from around the world. So I knew that I had a thing for writing, but at the time I didn't really understand that it was possible to make a living out of writing, make a career out of it, because the family that I came from was very much a conventional 
upper middle class African family where everyone is expected to do something in the sciences or in the commercial field. So my dad, when he went to university, he studied botany and zoology. He ended up becoming a real estate a developer. So he was science and commercial. Then my oldest sister was an engineer and systems analyst. Brother was a doctor. Other sister was a banker. Then my youngest sister was a stockbroker. So I was always like the odd one out. Black sheep of the family, if you like. I still am, in a manner of speaking. So I remember in 2006, I was doing my A-levels. I was doing a commercial combination on my A-levels. I was doing business studies, economics, and geography. And I was doing that because I didn't want to do the core sciences because I wasn't really interested in them. Not that I wasn't academically competent, but I just wasn't interested. So I was doing the furthest possible thing within my family's confines, you know, from science. So at the time I thought, okay, I will study business administration at university. So it's not science, but it's far away enough from science for me to be interested in it. So I went to meet my then English teacher, a guy called Mr. Kule at Oxbridge College. And I asked him to write a, um, a reference because when you're trying to get admissions university in the UK for an undergraduate program, on your UCAS application, you need a you need someone to write a reference for you. So I went to meet him for reference and he asked what program do I want to study? I said business business management. And he looked he looked at me and he said, Well, you're a good writer. Why do you want to study business management? Why don't you do what you are good at? And it was like that soul in Damascus moment for me. Because I had never heard anything like that in my life before. I'd never heard anyone tell me that. I'm so good at something that I could make a career out of it. And it had genuinely never occurred to me that it was possible to do that. So I went home, I did some research, and I realized that that university that I wanted to go to, it was the University of Reading. So there were two universities, University of Reading and Nottingham Trent University. And I looked through their programs, their courses, and I realized that there were courses in journalism and creative writing. I didn't know such, it had never occurred to me that creative writing is a thing you can actually study in school. It had genuinely never occurred to me. So I remember I, I went and told my parents that I wanted to change my, 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 my chosen university course, that I didn't want to study business admin anymore, that I wanted to study journalism and creative writing. And that caused an almighty uproar at home. Because as you can imagine, African parents, what the hell does that mean? Fun fact, of all five kids of my parents, I'm the only one to ever go to university in Nigeria. All my siblings, immediately they finished their A-levels or their sixth form, they went abroad immediately. I was the only one who got held back because my parents were like, there's no way we're going to spend pounds sterling to send you to go study writing. What is that? You know, because I was adamant that that's what I wanted to do. So in 2007, when I finished my A-level, I actually started at the Nigerian university called the Igbinedian University. I studied, I was studying mass communication there, which is the closest thing that they have to journalism. So, but I didn't last there long. And eventually, because I kept falling ill and the environment was just, I wasn't suited to it. And eventually my parents got tired and they were like, you know what, before this boy dies, let's just send him off to the UK. So they kind of like, just, okay, you want to study creative writing? Like, okay, yeah, whatever. It was kind of like this black sheep. It was like, I was kind of like a lost cause. Like, okay, yeah, whatever. Let's give him what he wants. He's not going to do anything with it anyway. So they kind of just tossed me. <laughs> so I ended up at the University of Hull studying creative writing and media culture and society. But while they didn't take it serious, I, from day one, knew that this was this definitely what I wanted to do. Even though I didn't necessarily have a, an idea in mind for what kind of career I would make out of it, but I just knew that I definitely want to do this. So 
it was a double honors program. So it was half of it was um, digital media production, which was in, in collaboration with the BBC. And then the other half was creative writing, media theory, and journalism. So which was a more, which like a very rigorous, like text-based program. So after I finished, the idea I had was I'll go get a job at the BBC or something. And because I had a girlfriend at the time, we would build a life together. That didn't happen. So in 2013, I ended up coming back to Nigeria to start afresh, like start my entire career afresh. Because between 2011, when I finished university and 2013, I just bounced from dead-end job to dead-end job. I wasn't doing anything relating to journalism. I wasn't doing anything relating to the program that I studied. So I, I worked in insurance. I worked in banking. I worked in clothes. It was just like little contract roles, three months here, one month here. Like it, I wasn't getting anywhere in life. And I thought, look, I'm getting older. I was 23 at the time, and I took the decision that I want to come back to Nigeria before I get to a certain age where it's impossible to start again, and then you get trapped in a non-career. So I came back to Nigeria in 2013, and um, I, I did my youth service at uh, a place called the Broadcasting Service of Ekiti State. I was a newscaster. Also. Then when I finished my youth service, and it was time to get a proper job in Lagos, my first actual job was at Vanguard Newspaper which is a daily newspaper in Nigeria. But I wasn't there for long because the editor looked at the stuff I was writing and he called me into his office one day and he told me, look, we know that you're going to leave. We know we can't keep you. So instead of, because they, they don't like like having high staff turnover or whatever. So instead of us wasting your time and you wasting our time, here's what I'll do for you. So he picked up his phone and he called his friend who ran a PR agency. Uh, the reasoning he had in his mind was that this PR agency can pay you a lot more than what we can pay you. The salary was 35000 naira a month, which I don't know if you're familiar with Naira, but that's not a lot of money, let me, <laughs> to say the least. So um, the idea was they, they thought they were doing me a favor by hooking me up with a PR company. I got the job. So I started working in October 2014 at a PR agency called Black House Media, DHM Group. So it's one of Nigeria's largest PR agencies so they work with mtn viacom uh, nigerian breweries that's uh, heineken to you really really big brands so i was there for two years so you know most people typically move from journalism into communications and pr i moved in the opposite direction so i start. i kind of started off in communication and pr and then in i, I left in 2016 to set up my own copywriting agency that didn't really work out because of timing and in 2017, I got the chance to join Channels TV on the political satire program, which you mentioned during the introduction. It was a program called uh, The Other News. It was modeled after The Daily Show. So I was actually the first writer to be given a contract on the show, and I was given the responsibility of hiring out the rest of the writing team. So even though technically, technically it's not journalism per se, but it was a writing role, and it was a writing role in media. So they, I kind of got bitten by the bug again. So while I was at Channels TV, I was doing that. That was my day job. I started Moonlight. I was doing uh, freelance work for some of these like forum platforms. So Yahoo Finance, CCN.com, Motley Fool, like mid-sized foreign journalism platforms where it was mostly focused on like business and finance reporting. That's what I was doing. And then eventually when I, because I was at Channels just over a year, Eventually, what I was doing on the side became bigger than what I was doing at Channels, at least in terms of you know, finances. So eventually, when I left Channels in 2018, I went, I faced that full time. 
So I was doing very well financially and I was doing journalism, which is what I always wanted to do. But in 2019, I realized, early 2019, around the time of Nigerian elections, I realized that I was developing a voice and a large collection of bylines in foreign media when nobody in Nigeria knew who I was and I had no voice in Nigeria. So I was far better known outside Nigeria than within Nigeria where I was physically. So I thought, okay, I need to do something about that. So in Q1 2019, I started actively trying to get my work placed in Nigerian media platforms and it paid off. Um, my very first regular gig in Nigerian media was with a defunct platform called um, The School. So I was doing a wifi column with them. And then from there, Business Day, which is a very successful daily newspaper in Nigeria, they reached out to me. They wanted to do a column as well. So I started doing work with them. None of this was investigative work. This was just, this was analysis, opinion, that sort of thing. So I was doing that from like April to like August 2019. And then that was when I did my first ever investigative story. So I had a cousin who was working at Badagri General Hospital. It's a hospital in a place called Badagri in, in Lagos. Um, he had just left. He was he had just moved to the UK. So he had never he hadn't forgotten the things he had seen on the job. So he sent me a tip that look, there's a lot going on at, at this hospital that needs to be exposed. So amongst other things, the mortality rate for women delivering a pregnancy BRCS was four in ten. Hospital didn't have basic oxygen, you know, just people were dying for just no reason. Essentially, the hospital was dirty, the generators weren't working, doctors were carrying out operations using their phone flashlights. It was just really awful. So he hooked me up with people in the hospital, doctors and nurses who were actually willing to talk on, on the record. So at the time, I was doing some work with an NGO called Rise Networks. We had like a we had a ten thousand dollar grant for a YouTube channel that we were we were running at the time. Um, I was the head producer for that YouTube channel. So I got the idea that, hey, instead of just writing a story about this, why don't, why don't we also do like a video documentary about this since we, we have the equipment? So we actually went to Badagri. We actually shot, you know, film. We spoke to people and we did a documentary about it. And I wrote the story. And when it came out, even though it didn't go like super, it didn't, you know, it, was, it, it didn't become a national story, but at least the local impact that it had in Lagos, you know, the Lagos State Health Service Commission started doing inspections at the hospital. Some people got fired. Even the MD almost got fired. And then the maternal mortality rate for CS went down to about 2 in 10, which obviously is still too many. But I think that was when the light bulb now really went off above my head. That. So you mean because of something I sat down and wrote on my laptop, people's lives were actually saved? Oh, wow. You know, I want to keep doing this. So... The very next month, a lady called Mercy Abang, she read the story. So the very next month, um, she reached out to me. She she runs a platform called Newswire, newswirengr.com. And it's I, I, don't, I don't think it's possible to tell my story without mentioning her. Because if I'm an investigative journalist today, she's probably the reason why. She gave me my first break. She gave me my first platform. She Because what she did for me, which no one had done for me before, was she said, I like the way you write. I like the way you, you investigate stuff. I like the way you, you do your research and I like the way you present your findings. So here's what, here's what we'll do. I will give you editorial freedom to choose your, choose your own stories. I will minimize any sort of editorial interference in your work because I know that you have a certain voice that you like. 
to, to, to come across that way. And what you would do is you will produce five stories a month for Newswire. Here's how much we'll pay you. It wasn't a lot of money, but it, you know, just for the fact, no one had ever done that for me before that, giving me a platform that, which was a relatively big platform as well, that, you know, here, put your, put your, showcase your work to the world. And Newswire basically became where I took off because from that moment, it, each story was bigger than the last one. It just wouldn't stop. It just got bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger until eventually I kind of outgrew Newswire itself. And I realized that I had to sort of go independent because even my presence on Newswire was starting to cause problems, even, even with the government for Newswire. And I realized that I was going to get them in trouble. They, they had, a, by, because by the time I had to flee Nigeria in 2020, Newswire's team was still based in Nigeria. I was still publishing on Newswire. So it was putting them in a very awkward situation where the government is looking for this guy. But there's a team of people who are working with this guy who are still within reach. So I didn't want to put them in danger or anything. So eventually I had to set up my own platform, which is called West Africa Weekly, which I'm sure you're aware of now. And that's where most of my work goes now. So that's like a very condensed version of my story. It's a very exciting black sheep story. <laughs> which you say yourself that you continue to be. What I'm interested in knowing is the lady you just referenced said, you have a particular style of writing, very dense in research. You want to close every possible loophole in the story so that it comes across as provable as possible. So you get documents, you get a lot of sources, you get a lot of references. There's the university where you learn that art of collecting evidences because your program i understand even though it was media history was also more creative writing based was that something you picked up naturally yourself or as something that you had to learn while on the job it, to be honest it wasn't really something that we were taught at university per se we were taught more of the classical method of reporting the classical method of reporting is you don't necessarily display the evidence that you have you just report it and the audience kind of has to trust that you are telling the truth, which I've always had a problem with, because how does the audience know that you're not lying? You know, you could be making it up. You know, the world has changed. I think that kind of reporting worked well in the world of the 1960s and 70s when these theories were created, but not in the world of the 21st century. So I think when when I started to evolve this way of putting stories together, I was actually, um, even before I started um, working as a journalist per se, just from my time in the internet space, um, I used to spend a lot of time on places like Twitter, places like 4chan, Reddit, Nairaland, you know, forums where there's a lot of back and forth. From my time in that space, that internet space, where the, the recurring things that you see is anything you say, nobody believes it until you provide evidence, until you provide proof, right? It's, it was like an unspoken rule of the internet of that internet culture that I was immersed in, that you don't just say stuff, you must always back it up. And if you say something without backing it up, the obvious, the general assumption is that you're lying. So it's something which, it's that it's not a journalistic convention, but it's something which I sort of took from that Reddit, 4chan, Nairland, Twitter space, and sort of imported it into my, I sort of synthesized my own style of journalism, that as against just reporting something and telling the audience that, I saw a document stating that X, Y, Z. Why don't I show them the document? If there's any information on that document, 
which shouldn't be public knowledge, I can redact it. I can use photo editing software to redact it or whatever. But the audience should at least see the person writing isn't just making it up. I think the audience deserves that. And I think more people have started adopting that now, which I think is good for journalism, in my opinion. Even though some people disagree, some people that insist that the classical method of doing it is best, that if, you, if you're constantly putting, putting out receipts and evidence, then somehow you are, you are potentially sacrificing the safety of your source or whatnot. I think there are ways of protecting the safety and anonymity of your source without you just basically telling the audience that, you know, I don't feel like I give you, <laughs> basically. So before I go into the details, I want to explore one more big theme, which is that if you were asked what is the vision statement of David Hedewin as an investigative journalist, what would that be? I wouldn't say I have a, like a ready-made statement to go, but just in general, my, my vision for, for what I want my work to accomplish is I believe that the purpose of journalism is to change society. I don't believe that it's tell stories for the sake of ticking boxes like a civil servant, which is what a lot of people in my space tend to do. I believe that if you have this power as a journalist, first of all, you have to acknowledge that you have this power. It is power. You have the power to reach a large number of people and you have the power to influence public opinion. So you have to acknowledge, first of all, they have that power and that knowing you have that power gives you a certain responsibility to use that power and use it responsibly. So first of all, in selecting stories, there's a particular type of story that I always select. There must always be an, an element of public interest, of public good in the story. So if it's just like a gossipy kind of thing, this person stole this person's money, that kind of thing, you're probably not going to see me touch it. There has to be an element of public interest, public good in it. That's number one. Number two, there has to be some sort of an impact, immeasurable impact. Of the story. So, for example, when I quite recently, when I did a story on Nigeria Air, the, the fraudulent, the fake airline basically that was set up in the dying embers of the Buhari administration, the purpose of that was to prevent a massive public fraud from taking place and also to spark some sort of systemic change within the aviation regulatory space and the aviation industry. That's how I tend to select stories. So, just in general, I, I I think the purpose of journalism is to change the world, right? The purpose of journalism is to use the power that your platform gives you to positively influence your society. So it goes back to what I said earlier about how I realized in 2019 that I was developing a voice outside and I wasn't doing anything where I was, right? So I found myself writing articles, doing critiques of like Donald Trump and whatnot, but I'm in Lagos. Where I am, I'm hearing the sound of a generator because there's no light. So why am I talking about Donald Trump? Why am I not talking about my own problems? I think that's that's the function of journalism is to make a change in society, a measurable change around you where you are. That's that's how I tend to think about it. And that's very brilliant. You know, when I reflect on all the work that you've done and the research, the very small amount of research I've done because you have written a lot, You've written a lot of things. I mean, as much as you're an investigative journalist, you're also a very prolific writer because I don't know how <laughs> I don't know how you're able to write that much in that short span of time. Books, articles, long form, all of that. What I reflect on, I think that 
that's a core theme of your work is that, and maybe you've come to this conclusion yourself already, but what I see is that you see the power of small ideas to be able to infest institutions, organizations, human beings at large. You see that. And then I feel in counter-respect that your small idea is that the power of truth can win if it is uncovered for the masses to see. One of my, my favorite quotes, I don't know who made the quotes, but one of my favorite quotes is, sunlight is the best disinfectant. I believe that a lot of the time, you know, when we complain about how um, African institutions, African leaders are dysfunctional, they are, they, are, um, they are dictatorial, they are authoritarian, they don't listen to the people, they don't act in the interest of the people. A lot of the time, I believe that there are actually not that many leaders and institutions in Africa that actually have that power to be completely dictatorial and aloof. A lot, 90% of the reason why they can be that way is because the, the people who are being governed are not switched on enough. The people are not, are not following them back to back. The people are not holding their nose to the fire. Obviously, there are exceptions. You have people like Afwerki in Eritrea. You know, those ones, they are maximum rulers. There is actually isn't really much you can do with people like that. But in a place like Nigeria, for example, you find out, and this is, this is what I found, found out, that when you actually hold the, their nose to the grindstone, you tell a story, you tell it fiercely in a very uncompromising way, and um, you don't leave any space for them to discredit you or for them to make excuses. And then they can't buy you off, right? So even if they make an offer, you don't answer them. And that thing is in the public domain and it has a wide audience. Everybody has read it. You will find out that more often than not, at the very least, at the very least, they will have to come out and address it. At the very least, they have to issue a statement. What power wants to do is just sit in its comfort zone and just ignore you. That's the normal African thing. But when you use that power of truth, that power of sunlight, that power of exposure, public shape, you know, public spectacle, and you shine that flashlight, it has a very powerful effect, right? A lot of people don't, don't understand this, which is why one of the accusations very irritating accusations, actually, that has that constantly tends to follow me around is this thing of oh, you are being, um, you are sensationalizing the story. You are being sensationalist. No, you are not being sensationalist. Rather, what you are doing is that you are telling the story the way it actually is in its true ugliness, right? You are not using, you know, um, finely polished grammar to tell the story of something that is ugly, right? Something I I always believe is that. If you are telling a story of something which is unacceptable, something which is ugly, something which is violent, something which is repulsive, how do you want to tell that story truthfully if what the audience is reading is not any of those things? Then that means that you are not being truthful with the audience, right? So if I'm telling you a story about Nigeria and you are there, you know, sipping a latte and feeling comfortable reading it, you know, it doesn't make you feel uncomfortable in any way, then I'm lying to you. Right. So I'll present it to you exactly the way it is. I want you to be as uncomfortable as the people who actually experience it are. That's what I, I believe journalism should do. So, yes, sunlight is the best disinfectant. And that effect that sunlight has on, at least in my experience, on political and civil service leadership in Africa is immense.
right? It's not going to save Africa. It's not going to save the world. But a good 40 to 60% of these problems, just truthful, uncompromising storytelling can have such an impact. And there are very many examples of this. For example, in um, 2021, there was a story which it should have been like a local story, but because of my involvement in it, it became kind of like a national story. So there was a, a state called um, Akwai Bomb in Nigeria. So there was a young lady, she was 26. She was a job seeker. So she went to attend a job interview. She was invited to a job interview. And she basically ended up raped and murdered because the invitation to the job interview was a fake invitation, right? And the person who committed the murder, the, the father of the murderer was apparently like a traditional ruler in the community and he had some influence. And he had started throwing weight around. The local police in Akwaibong were trying their best to ensure that the case was bungled, right? So key evidence was being, you know, the crime scene, they were allowing the public to traipse in and out, contaminating the crime scene, which basically renders it in, inadmissible in court. You know, so what I did when I got involved in the story was I was able to get a whistleblower from the telecoms company, which was the service provider for the for the murder suspect, and I was able to get hold of the murder suspect's call records, and I was able to use, basically use open source intelligence sources like Facebook, like uh, Truecaller, to identify the people he had been speaking to. And basically creates to basically reconstruct a picture of what exactly it was that happened that day and basically conclusively prove that this guy did this thing right and as, as a result of that story that investigation was actually taken away by it was taken away from the Bomb state police it was taken to the federal level so it became a federal investigation and eventually the guy was convicted he was given a death sentence right so but the the point i'm making is that ordinarily what would have happened if I hadn't told the story in the way that I did is that the way it was covered initially it was covered it was covered almost like a gossip story you know the local police and local authorities were doing their hardest to you know to muddy the water so they actually they made him do a TV appearance in handcuffs where they were, he was being interviewed and um, the interviewer was asking him that uh, so uh, why did you fight with your girlfriend? Because essentially they were trying to create the impression that it was some kind of lover's tiff, some kind of lover's quarrel that went sour, you know, that they, they had consensual sex and then they, there was a disagreement afterwards and then they had a fight and then unfortunately she died. Meanwhile, she was a complete stranger to him. He raped her and then murdered her afterwards, right? So if I hadn't gotten involved in the manner that I did, the whole thing would have been recast in a completely different light. And, you know, the, it would have stayed at state level. They maybe would have got convicted for maybe manslaughter or something. You get six years in prison. And then before you know it, it's out. And justice wouldn't have been served. So that's that's what I think journalism should do. Yeah, I think that's a very great example that illustrates that. So let's now go into, you know, the details. The devil is in the details. Let's start from Boko Haram. Your book, Conflicts for Jihad, the origin story of Boko Haram, gives a reflective drawback. You piece this together. Before that, there was no piecing together of, I guess, your perspective of where Boko Haram comes from. And you make a very convincing argument, fact-driven argument, on where Boko Haram comes from, the ideologies that back it, and why it has succeeded in 
you know, decimating northern Nigeria as it has. Um, obviously, the influence of Boko Haram since, you know, 2006, they're about, has, I mean, 2011, definitively when they started their ratings, has been documented. And so I can understand why you want to do that. What I would want to understand also is what first pieces of information you got that gave you clarity that this could be a successful story, that I could succeed at uncovering the, the hidden nuances to the bigger picture. So um, first of all, I've been, I've been in and around that space for a number of years. So even, even long before I, I worked on that story, in 20, starting from 2018 going to 2019, I, I don't know if, you, if, you, if you've ever heard of a report called um, Nigeria's Silent Slaughter. Genocide in Nigeria and implications for the international community. So I worked on that report. Um, so if you check the, the the credits page on that report, there are three names you'll see. You'll see Dr. Obadiah Malafia, Dr. Ayo Adedoin, and Dr. Richard Ikebe. I was the fourth person, but obviously because I was actually resident in Nigeria at the time, so it was better for me to be unnamed. Now, what that report did was demonstrate to the U.S. State Department and to the, and to the U.S. presidency that at least some of the violence taking place in northern and northern Nigeria and the Middle Belt was religiously driven. It was a religiously motivated uh, a, a genocide. Um, so what we did was we spent close to a year traveling around the region, documenting these attacks, getting pictures, names, death certificates, all sorts of things to document and prove that this is a targeted and directed systematic campaign of violence against certain religious and ethnic groups right which we did successfully in fact in 2020 shortly before trump left office because a direct um, result of that report nigeria was placed on a list as a country of particular concern for violation of, of religious freedoms which wasn't really what we asked for but you know that's they, they said that, that that was the most that they could give us you know whatever so um, coming from that background i was already kind of acquainted with different parts of the story but you know when it's like, you know that story about people who are holding um, three three men who are blind. One is holding the trunk of an elephant, one is holding the ear, and one is holding the tusk. So each of them is describing what they feel, but they are they are all wrong and they are all correct at the same time. So in 2021, sometime I think it was July 2021 was when I first started getting a sense of the actual bigger picture here, that. Yes, they, you know, in, in addition to it being, you know, a religiously motivated campaign of violence and whatnot, there is actually an international angle to this, even going beyond Africa. When when that when that first started becoming evident to me was when um, the so in in the story that I wrote there was a, there was a document which I referenced, which was it was a letter by the um, Nigeria's permanent representative to, to the UN, a guy called uh, Ambassador Abinu Diwali where he mentioned that the Nigerian government had basically seized the assets of a large Nigerian conglomerate, business conglomerate called NASCO Nigeria Limited for basically for the offense of um, financing terrorism. I had never heard of this before. 2021 was the first time I became aware of this, that there was a time when NASCO was actually proscribed. I mean, everyone in Nigeria knows NASCO. Like, we all grew up eating NASCO conflicts, NASCO biscuits. You know, it's a very big very well-loved FMCG brand in Nigeria. So it was just so wild to me that 
this happened in 2006. How come I've never heard of this before? And then I did some digging and it turned out this has actually been in public domain. But the problem is back then there was no internet in Nigeria, basically. Like maybe in the whole of Nigeria, maybe 200,000 people had internet access back then. So a lot of these things, which are on some UN repository or some academic repository somewhere, they are actually freely accessible, or maybe they cost like $10 to access, but people just don't have access to, they just don't know. People don't know what they don't know, basically. You know? So this information is there, but nobody has any clue. So this thing has been sitting in some UN repository since 2006, freely accessible if you wanted it. And it wasn't until 2021 that it just kind of happened to, I was looking for, I was researching another story and this was something that just kind of along the way, I stumbled across this document and it was like, huh? What? Lasco was prescribed? Really? You know, and then I did some more digging and then it was is like you start going down a rabbit hole. And then there's this and there's that. And then before you know it, I'm looking at, oh, there's a Saudi connection here. Really? And there's a Qatari connection here. And then, you know, um the 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 book uh by uh, what's the name David Cummings um the the book that I referenced I forget the name now but it was about the 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 Muslim World League which was funded by Saudi Arabia you know I actually had to go on Amazon I actually buy the book because I saw I, there was a throwaway reference I think on Wikipedia so and I was like okay I need to read more about it so I actually had to go find the book which was actually not it's actually quite hard to find because it's it's not it was not a very you know well publicized book i think it wasn't even on amazon i ended up getting it it was like a secondhand copy i ended up getting somewhere and i read it and i was like this is explosive information why why have i never come across this before because what he basically said in the book was that this muslim world league essentially it was a was a diplomatic outpost of the saudi government which was essentially using wahhabi islam as a diplomatic extension of Saudi foreign policy, right? And it was so interesting to me because in my immediate environment as a Nigerian, I could actually see, like, from when I was a child, things around you that you noticed, but you didn't know where they were coming from. But I could link them that, okay, so this is where this came from. Because you would notice, for example, as a child, you would notice that there are some places you travel to in Nigeria, places like Ilori and, uh, and Ibadan. Some of these... Um, like extremely conservative, like fundamentalist um, Sunni Islamic establishments, and they they are there for decades, and they're there, and there are loads of people there, and you just keep wondering where is the funding for all of this coming from? Because these people don't work. There's no economic structure here where you can say, okay, there's some donor or something. Where is the funding? And it, it doesn't really occur to you as a child to ask that question. But much later, when I'm, when I'm reading all of this, that the Saudi government was head pumping huge sums of money into these things across the world. That's when it all started to come together. That Oh, that's what that was. Right. That's how come those people were able to survive and keep on recruiting. And, get, and there's no economic system behind them. This was a Saudi government-funded thing. And then much later, the Qataris also got in on the act. So, you know, that story took quite a while to put together. That story took almost, in, in terms of gathering all the different pieces, because I knew, again, the worst thing you can do with that kind of story is put it out before you've completed it. 
Because what that would do is that even if there's some really good information in there, because of the kind of people you are dealing with, people who obviously have an interest in discrediting the story, if the story isn't watertight, they're going to tear you apart. And they're going to completely discredit the story. So that even if there was something valid in the story, everything is going to be lost. So it's going to be lost to the audience. So it took a while. I had to take my time to sit down and actually piece everything together well. The actual draft, I always tell people the drafting of the story, that's the final, the actual writing of the story is like the easiest part of the entire journalism process for me. It, it takes a few hours to do that. The real part that takes weeks and months is the research and putting this together and gathering resources. That took a while. But eventually I was able to, to get to the point where I thought that I had enough. Now, okay, I, this this can be put out as it is. Eventually, there was still more. I ended up coming out later, and I was I was a bit upset that oh, I should have waited a bit more. There was more information I could have added, but you know, I'm still reasonably happy with with how it turned out. For those that are not acquainted with the story, would you want to give a summary overview of your perspective of how Boko Haram came about and why they continue to thrive in Nigeria? from the perspective of your book you've written and the research stories, articles. Right. So first of all, I should, I, I should mention that it, it wasn't, a, it wasn't a book. It was a long read article. I mean, it's probably long enough to be a book, <laughs> but it wasn't actually a book. You know, at, at the time, at the time I wasn't knowing what I know now, it would actually have made sense to put it out as, as a book or as, or as a booklet, but you know, we live and we learn. So, Essentially, the long and short of the story is that the the in Nigeria, what what we have been taught as the origin story of Boko Haram is like an overly simplified version of it. The version of the story we were taught is that there is this hyper conservative Islamic cleric called uh, uh, Muhammad Yusuf, who was influential in in northeastern Nigeria, especially in Borno State between the late nineties and the mid nineties. And then um, in 2000 and 2006, 2007, after he had a falling out with the Borno state government, then he became sort of like an outlaw, sort of. And then his followers became armed. So there was, I'm skipping the story. So um, initially they were affiliated with the way part of the Borno state government structure, sort of. In fact, as of 2005, the commissioner for religious affairs in Borno State was actually from the Boko Haram sect, right? Because then Boko Haram wasn't under, wasn't recognized as a terror entity. It was just a religious entity at the time, a Sunni conservative entity at the time. But following the 2007 election, there was a falling out with the then Borno State governor. And as a result, they were no longer part of the governing structure. And then they kind of became outlaws. And then in 2009, this guy, Mohammed Yusuf, led a, an armed rebellion against the Nigerian state, starting with Borno. So there was like, a, his followers had become armed. They had bought weapons from Chad, and basically they got into shooting, um, shootouts, duels with the Nigerian police and the Nigerian army. He was captured and he was um, extrajudicially executed outside the police headquarters in Borno, and his, his body was left on display. So if you, if you search on the internet, they're very horrible images, which you can still find, of, of uh, Mohammed Yusuf's horribly you know, disfigured body with like AK-47 bullets, bullet wounds and whatnot. And as a result of that, 
his following became even more radicalized. So his deputy, a guy known as Abubakar Shekau, then took over. And from that point, Boko Haram became what we know them as today. That's the oversimplified version of the story that we were taught in Nigeria. However, it goes way beyond that because that's like starting the story from the middle. Because Muhammad Yusuf himself was part of a wider context. He didn't just, it wasn't just that like he was just a conservative guy, he was just so charismatic that he just he inspired people to, you know, people people did crazy things because of Boko Haram at the time. People dropped out of school, people left their jobs because you know the name, the term Boko Haram literally means book is forbidden. Western education is forbidden, right? So they would actually go to university campuses in northern Nigeria to recruit people and convince them to leave school, to drop out of university, to go and to follow this strict Sunni Islamist sort of lifestyle. The long and short of the story that I put out was, this actually goes way back to the 50s, to the 60s actually, that following the, um, the rise of the, the Saudi Arabian states in the 50s and the 60s, um, one of the ways that they sought to gain foreign influence was to use, to basically weaponize Islam. So this thing that we know, that we call political Islam is a creation of the modern Saudi Arabian state. That basically the Wahhabi interpretation of Sunni Islam, which is like the state's religion in Saudi Arabia, they basically exported it and used it as a tool of diplomatic control and influence to basically control populations far beyond their borders and to have influence in a way that ordinarily they themselves couldn't have. Right. And um, West Africa was, you know, there were many African countries that were that were among those outposts. Nigeria was one of the chief recipients of the, the doctrinal, the flow of doctrine, the flow of money, the flow of um, personalities, all sorts. There was, a, there was a lot of logistical support that went into cultivating this time bomb, if you like, that there were uh, Muslim students in Nigeria who were handpicked. They were sent to Sudan for further training. Some were sent to Saudi Arabia, but there's, there's a very notorious university called the Islamic University of Medina, which has been, I think it's actually been, was actually recognized at one time by the CIA as the world's top, the world's leading um, incubator, if you like, of, 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 of terrorists, right? So they, they invested a lot of money in cultivating this pipeline of like-minded people across West Africa. And... Basically, what they did, using a guy called Sheikh Abu Bakr Gumi, who, by the way, has a son by the same name, who still follows in the same line. Basically, they they took over northern Nigeria. So northern Nigeria used to, even though it was already you know, dominated by Islam, by Muslims, it used to be quite a plural place. So there were several sects. There were the Tijaniyas, the Ahmadiyas, the Shias. It was a quite diverse place. But... Using this Saudi money and Saudi influence, Northern Nigeria started to become more and more monolithic and it became Sunni Islam. And not just Sunni Islam, but that Wahhabi stroke Salafi interpretation of Islam. So, and along with that creation of you know, a culturally monolithic and religiously monolithic Northern Nigeria, violence also started to erupt in small places. And the pipeline has been building since the 80s. So if you've ever heard of something called the um, Maitinani Revolution in the in the 80s, it was the precursor, if you like, to Boko Haram. 
in the 1980s, there was it was a, it was essentially an armed rebellion of Salafi Islamists against the Nigerian state, which took place between I think between 1982 and 1983, right? So that was like the precursor to this. So essentially, Boko Haram was was an inevitable conclusion in a long-running chain of events. And the reason that that was an important thing to communicate to the audience is that a lot of us, myself included, had the erroneous impression that the Nigerian police created Boko Haram by executing uh, Mohammed Yusuf, that if they hadn't extrajudicially executed him, then his followers hadn't, wouldn't have become radicalized, and, you know, which is not true because the radicalization took place many decades before. So the purpose of, of that story, in essence, was to tell the full story from the beginning, that what we know as today as Boko Haram is actually the result of a Saudi-funded project of, of Wahhabism, promotion of Wahhabism across the world, particularly in North and West Central Africa. And it's no coincidence that it's in those places where Saudi money was pumped into that we have very similar very similar groups using very similar methods of violence to achieve very similar political goals. And these groups actually cooperate with each other. So the second bit, the second half of the story was then to show how entities within Nigeria that we weren't aware of were actively involved in collaborating with this with this thing now Boko Haram and furthering its goals. So we often hear the Nigerian government making statements about how one day we will expose the, the, the funders and financiers of Boko Haram, and that one day never comes. Right? They keep talking about them as if they are spirits. Right? So one thing I set out to do in that story was to name names. That okay, these are these are some of those people. So we had names like the founder of, of NASCO Limited, a guy called um, Ahmed Idris Nasruddin, um, whose family whose family was very upset after the story <laughs> because they didn't want to be. I think they thought that they had got away with it and they didn't understand why this journalist is dragging this up again after all these years, right? Because at the time when they had this problem, as I said, there was no internet. So nobody knew, nobody ever heard of it. Ahmed Idris Nasruddin, founder of NASCO, who was designated by the US Treasury Department as a, as a money launderer and a financier of, of global terrorism. A guy called um, Haruna Sharu, who is a top-ranking member of the foremost Wahhabi or Salafist body in Nigeria, which is known colloquially as the Izala movement or the Izala sect. There's a full name for it, um, Jamatu Izalatil, but I can't, I don't speak Arabic, so I'm not going to pretend to know how to pronounce it, but it's known colloquially as the Izala movement or the Izala group. So he's one of the top ranking members. I think he's actually, he's actually on, the, on the national board of this organization. And this person, this person was arrested actually by the Nigerian government back in 2002 for run and set up canoe and militant training camps, terrorist training camps in, in Katsina State for the purpose of training some of these people who would later go on to become the militants. That was also important to point out because it showed that the creation of armed militants, armed terrorists, didn't start in 2009. As far back as 2002, the Nigerian state has actually been aware of this and has actually been arrested. And a guy called um, uh, Yakubu Hassan, aka Yakubu Katsina, that this is the main person because this guy is, a, I think he was then the, the board chairman of the Zala Society, which is Nigeria's most powerful Muslim body. And this guy has also been arrested by the Nigerian state and was actually mentioned in a US WikiLeaks diplomatic cable as being someone who was a point man for the development of local terrorism networks as far back as 2002. 
And that this guy somehow was released from prison, somehow didn't really get tried, somehow got away with it, and has now reinvented himself as a regular Islamic cleric. And as recently as 2018, this person was pictured in Asurok, taking a picture with the then president, Muhammad Buhari, along with other prominent members of the Zella Society. So the purpose of doing that, of showing that picture as well, was to tell the audience that essentially the person who was in office at the time, Muhammad Buhari, at the very least has some sympathies with these people at the very least. So you shouldn't expect any significant gains in the, the war against Boko Haram with this person in office because the people who created Boko Haram and who at one time even in Nigerian state itself acknowledges that they, they funded and armed and trained this Boko Haram, these people are not appearing in pictures with this guy in Asurok. So basically like what you know two arms on the same body are pretending to fight each other so that was that was that's the long and short of the story there's very i can't do it justice with a summary like this so if anyone hasn't read it just google conflicts for jihad that's all just google that phrase conflicts for jihad there's this written story there's all, i also created a documentary out of it on my youtube channel which is called west africa weekly as well so if you if you don't want to sit down for one hour to read the long read you can watch the documentary yeah at the end, you you went into a bit of the essence of the story because a question was coming up in my head. So you have partially addressed it, but maybe I want to phrase it more generally, not just with regards to the Boko Haram story. Because when you mentioned sunlight is the best disinfectant and those are about the change of the world, in my head it was a very, in quotes, easily digestible statement. But when you now went into the Boko Haram story, it now becomes more complex. Because I started to think, okay, how is the sunlight the disinfectant necessarily within like a more complex story? And then, for instance, like for, let's say now with the Niger Nigeria situation, for instance, it becomes more complex to see the direct, like yeah, you shining the sunlight, like in the murder case you described. And then obviously, when you end that story, I think probably. 90% of people will see, okay, clearly sunlight, we see the result, what's coming out of this. But how does this materialize in like more complex stories with multiple stakeholders and stakeholders that are maybe operating on a global scale or are not based in Nigeria? So again, um, even if this, it doesn't necessarily lead to like these players being demobilize maybe these players are so powerful that the story can't directly hurt them or anything like that a lot of the time what i've come to understand is that these players like to operate in silence and they assume that nobody knows what they're up to like what so if you if you're familiar with how for example um intelligence agencies do their work no matter how well resourced they are like the djsc or the cia or whatever their number one rule is always secrecy Secrecy is the is the, is the is the biggest weapon of all, right? Even if you have the world's largest army, even if you have a freaking Harry Potter invisibility cloak, it's still best that you can do your stuff in secret and nobody knows. Because the minute that this is exposed publicly, then all of a sudden you can no longer predict what moving parts have been set in motion. You don't know who has heard what, who knows what, who has access to what. So just for the fact that you push it out to the public already, that creates a sense of, should I say, panic or a 
a sense of um, unease amongst these players that if I'm pushing forward an agenda and then somebody comes and does a story that completely like illuminates what I'm doing to the whole world and this person has a large audience and maybe a, a million people have read it like because this story the readership on my website was over it's like, the most recent count was about 1.2 million and that's just a written story it's also a documentary and this went much further than that people <laughs> people printed out copies and sold it in traffic in Lagos, all sorts of things you know so there was a very wide readership so from that point of view those who are who are implicated then have to think twice that okay this thing we've been doing if we continue doing it in this in this obvious manner then it's going we're going to be even further implicate ourselves and you know prove this guy right because another major thing that i've come to understand in my career is that a lot of these people are very petty they're extremely petty so their problem a lot of the time is not even that oh we've been caught no their problem is that this guy is going to be vindicated so what i've found out and this is you, you might find this you might find this strange but what i've found out is that sometimes when you expose something these people will go out of their way to even destroy that thing that they have created right just so that you will not get the credit for exposing it but either way either way that has that has done something good for the public because if in the process of trying not to if the process of trying to ensure that you don't get credited for this thing, they end up doing your job for you. Then I think job done, right? I've seen this several times in my career where, so for example, this most recent one, the Nigeria Air, this whole debacle surrounding Nigeria Air, when I first put out the story, there was first this huge denial that, no, I'm fake news, I don't know what I'm talking about, I need to go back to journalism school, blah, 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 you know, sensationalist, blah, 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 all that stuff. And then eventually, after all of that died down, they quietly went and pulled the plug on the entire project. They suspended the entire the entire thing. They pulled the plug on it. Now, after after claiming that they oh, it wasn't a scam, there's nothing wrong with it. I, I'm, it's just this guy that doesn't know what he's talking about. They went and pulled the plug on it quietly, very quietly. They didn't make an announcement when they pulled the plug on it. They just they didn't even put out a press release stating that we have officially suspended Nigeria Air. So it was just the, the minister making a comment on something else, and he just casually slipped it in that uh, we suspended the project, blah, 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 for audits, and that's that. So essentially, that has done my job for me. So a lot of the time, it's, it's not the journalist himself, or it's not the story itself that is so powerful, but it's the reaction in the, in the hearts and minds of the people who feel implicated by it that will do the job for you. There's like a multiplier effect and that's what i mean when i say that the journalist needs to be aware of the power that they hold right so you can't just put out a story and say i've done my job whatever i'm going to sleep now you also have to study the reaction to the story to know what to do in case of next time so another big thematic um in terms of a story that you have covered is the nsas right that that was 2020 COVID regulations all of that the world was on a hold, but Nigeria was in deep crisis. The youth of Nigeria wanted this militant police activity that had invaded their lives for a very long time to stop. And you published a story on that. If I'm correct, maybe correct me if I'm wrong. That was probably part of the reason why you had to leave Nigeria. Um, because, yes, 
the 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 government you know, of the of the day was very very unhappy with you. Can you tell us about your involvement in that phenomenon and and the aftermath also? I'm particularly interested in the aftermath because you wrote a story about one year after NSAS, etc. So let's take um, a genesis of that and then let's talk about the impact aftermath. So as you rightly said. This has existed for many years. As there was a descriptive word you used, militant activity. That's a very descriptive and a very accurate term to use for how the police have been relating with young men, especially young men. There's been a very adversarial relationship between young Nigerian men and the Nigerian police. Um, I myself have experienced it on a number of occasions. I've actually been arrested once for, for nothing, basically. I was driving my car, I was minding my business, and they just jumped out in front of the car and, you know, because they, they, they basically profile you and based on what their eyes tell them, they decide that you are an internet fraudster or something. So they profile you. Maybe you have, you have facial hair. Maybe you, you have body art or you wear earrings, you know, like I do. That makes you an internet criminal. I don't know how that makes any sense, but, you know, the famously intelligent and well-trained Nigerian police force in their in their wisdom make those sports decisions and they harass you like that as far back as 2017 the nsas hashtag was actually created it actually started on twitter right it was actually a hashtag that was created by there's a guy well i, I don't want to mention his name anyway but he's a he's like a, like a twitter influencer kind of thing. Just, just a regular guy right and it was never really supposed to go beyond twitter right it was just a hashtag and it's it's for the intervening three years, every few months it would it would flare up and die down again. It's just a Twitter thing. You know, the NSAS hashtag was just a thing. In fact, the, the, I remember there was a police officer, his name was uh, Abayo Misho Gunle. There was, I remember there was a time in 2019, he actually made a mockery of it. So he he, he put out a tweet saying um uh, 85 million retweets to NSARS. Like he was actually mocking people using the hashtag NSARS, because that's how much of, they thought it was so funny, you know, that what, what the hell do you mean NSARS? Who, who makes you think, what makes you think you have that kind of power to tell the Nigerian government what to do or to tell us what to do? You know, because that, again, that's how the Nigerian government views its citizens, it views them as subjects, not as citizens, right? You, that might be a very different experience to what you are, to what you are used to in Ghana, but in Nigeria, that's very much how it is. They, even though it's supposedly a civilian administration, the military mindset is still very much there, up to and including the extrajudicial killings and everything. It's still very much there. So in September 2020, there was something called the Police Reform Act, which was signed into law. Now, what this Police Reform Act had been advertised as to the public was the legislation that would change how the Nigerian police relates to the public, that would stop human rights abuses that will stop indiscriminate arrests, that kind of thing, warrantless arrests, that kind of thing. That's what it was sold to us as. And something I used to do back then was I used to write legal reviews. So when a piece of legislation is passing through the house or when it's been signed into law, I'd read through it and then I'd write a review in language that regular people can understand, right? So essentially um, a legal review written in layman's language. That's what I used to do. It used to be really popular. In fact, I, I, I won the People Journalism Prize for Africa in 2020 because of a legal review that I did for the um, Infectious Diseases Act. So it, it was a thing I used to do almost every month back then. Now, um, 
and the reason I used to do it was because in Nigeria there's no there's no official process for knowing which legislation is passing through the house. There's no website you can go to to find out what bill is being read. Nothing. So essentially, what happens is I have a friend or friends who are correspondents at the National Assembly who manage to get like a rough PDF copy or something, or they use their phones and take take pictures of the pages of the bill which is being read in the house and convert it to a, like using cam scanner, convert it to a PDF, and then they send it to me. And then, you know, overnight, I read through it, I write, I write the review, and then I put it out the next morning, and then it goes viral. And then if it's a bad bill, then that viral, that noise stops the bill from getting passed. That's what used to happen. In this case, the bill had already passed, so it had been signed into law, but I did the review anyway. And what the review basically said was that this bill is not a reform act. There are no reforms contained in this bill whatsoever. This bill basically reiterates what was already written in the previous police act, and in fact, gives the police new powers. So, for example, it gives it gave the police the, the powers to carry out subject completely warrantless subjective arrest based on the subjective opinion of the police officer. So there was a clause, there was a clause in there that was so horrifying. It said. That the police of the policeman is authorized to carry out arrest without warrant if in his sole discretion that is the only way to prevent a crime from being committed which is a very open-ended clause that in the sole discretion of this police officer if he thinks that the only way to prevent any kind of crime at all that he decides from being committed is to arrest me he has the power to arrest me without warrant and he can do that legally so I did that review. I, I put it out. If you Google it, you'll see it. it's still up there on the internet somewhere. And it went even more viral than any review I'd ever done before went. And it created a lot of panic, especially within the young, you know, the young male demographic. Because it was like, this thing that they've been doing since, and at least maybe after we shout and we get a couple of thousand retweets, then they will leave us alone. This time around, this thing has been written into law. So now, even with our retweets, they're not. You know, they're, they're, they're not going to leave us alone anymore. And it caused a lot of panic. That was in September. That was around September 21, 2020. So that was like the fuel which had been laid on the ground. And then on October, I think it was October 6 or October 7, 2020. No, it was, I think it was, it was October 4. There was, a, there was a viral video that emerged of these SARS police officers um, they stopped a guy in a Lexus somewhere in Delta State and threw him out of his car and basically sped off in his car. Right? And the way they threw him out, they beat him up and threw him out. So it, there were rumors going around that the guy died. He didn't actually die, but those are the rumors going around that they killed someone and stole his car. And that became the spark that met the petrol. So that for the first time, NSARS migrated from being a Twitter hashtag to being an offline protest. It, it, was, it was not a big protest, right? So just a few people like Renu, they, they decided to go do something, do some you know, public action, some protest action, just to let their voice hear that this is too much. Why are people doing this? And then more people kept coming, and more people kept coming, and more people kept... Like, I didn't take it seriously at first. At the very first day of the protest, I was there, and I remember I tweeted about it, I like, people are serious. This is not a real protest. I went home. I didn't take it serious. And then second day, third day, fourth day, and there are thousands. And then it started from like Lekki, and then all of a sudden it's like all over Lagos, and then it's like all over southern Nigeria. It's in Benin, it's in Delta, 
It's in Anambra. What's going on here? But before you know it, it became a full-blown national, the whole country ground to a halt. I've never seen anything like it before. There was, there was, there was nobody in charge. There was no central leadership team, nothing. It was completely decentralized and it was just a, millions of young people coming out onto the streets and saying, end SARS. I've never seen anything like it before in my life. It was, it was very exciting. It was also very scary because I think nobody really knew how this was going to end. And I think a lot of us were actually very naive. I certainly was very naive at the time because there are some things I did then. I look back on it now and I'm like, what was I thinking? So one of the things I did um, on October on October 10, there was a big demonstration in Abuja where the police came out and they beat up people. They used tear gas. And, then, and I, I was watching the videos on Twitter and I was so angry because I was protesting in Lagos. So the next thing I did was I bought a flight ticket to Abuja and then I went and I posted my ticket on Twitter to like 40,000 followers. Like, yeah, you, you, people, you come with me to Abuja. We're going to Abuja. We're going to storm. <laughs> I don't know what I thought I was doing. We're going to storm Abuja tomorrow. And then I, you know, I actually flew to Abuja. I took a picture at the, I took a selfie at the door of the plane when we landed at Namdi Azikiwe Airport. And, you know, and there, was, there, was, there was a whole thing. You know, in hindsight, that was a very stupid thing to do because I was basically setting myself up. Like this is a very this is a, this is a military government wearing civilian clothing. It's not a smart thing to do that. I mean, you know, but again, we're very naive. You know what the hell did we know? So again, they just kept getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And then even after the president then put out a statement saying that he has officially disbanded the SARS unit. So at that point, I thought, okay, what we are asking for has been accomplished. So I went back to my house. I stopped protesting because I thought, right, we. We came out to request to demand for an end to SARS. That said SARS has been ended, at least on paper. So let's go back in now and see whether it's actually going to be to be affected, right? But nobody went back indoors. People stayed on the street. And then the government started panicking. The government thought that this is some kind of like Arab Spring, color revolution kind of moment. So then their solution to that was what they did on October 20, where they basically had a, a huge massacre at the Lekito Plaza. And it wasn't just at the Lekito Plaza. In fact, the week after October 20, there were several other massacres which have sort of been forgotten by history now because the one in Lagos sort of swallowed up all the media attention. There was a there was an equally brutal one in River State in a place called uh, Obigo. I think even more people might have died in Obigo than in Lagos. But it's not Lagos, so it didn't have the same coverage. There was a massacre in Benin as well. You know, and then in other parts of Lagos, apart from Lekki, there were similar things that took place. So at that moment, I knew that once a government gets to the point of enacting Chinaman Square on its citizens, then the next thing that's going to happen is anyone that has any kind of voice is going to become the enemy. So whether you're a journalist, you're a trade unionist, you're an academic, or you're an opposition politician, or a feminist, whatever you are, you're going to be... You, you are going to be in trouble. So I knew immediately the night that it happened was when I started making my plans to leave. So the night of October 20, while the massacre was going on, because it was a couple of kilometers away from my flat, I could actually hear the gunshots. And I was following on Twitter. And while that was going on, I was I remember I was logging into my, my Binance account because I, was, I used to keep most of my money in, in crypto. I was logging into my Binance account and I was like trying to like transfer every all the naira i had i was moving it from my nigerian bank account into crypto because i knew that i'm going to leave nigeria like really soon 
that was October 20. I left Nigeria November 6. So just just under two weeks later. Before I left, I had been working on this story because the I think the two days or three days after the massacre, that PR agency that I told you I used to work at, DHM, I think I mentioned that one of their clients was, was MTN. So it's like their biggest client. So at the time, the night of the massacre, everybody noticed that while, while it was going on, the internet was almost, most people couldn't actually access the internet at all. The few who could access it, the speeds were extremely slow and throttled. So there was a conspiracy theory going going around that the network operators like MTN had teamed up with the government to st- prevent people from from showing the world the truth of what was happening. And MTN was taking a lot of heat. So they reached out to VHM, obviously their PR agency, and told them, look, we had nothing to do with this. So we need you to explain, without antagonizing the government, we need you to explain to the public that this had nothing to do with MTN. And they sent MTN a bunch of documents proving this. Um, Funny story, if you remember a lady called DJ Switch, who the person who actually streamed, live streamed the massacre on Instagram, apparently she was using an, an, an MTN connection. Funny story. Um, I think I even mentioned that in my story, actually. So, but anyway, so that was part of the information that they sent to 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 BHM. So, I missed this huge dossier of information that they sent to BHM. Was a statement from Alton, which is the umbrella body for all mobile network operators in Nigeria, and the statement basically said that um, on the night of the massacre, that they suffered several um, fiber cuts. On their network infrastructure fiber cuts is basically a euphemism it means that somebody dug up their fiber optic cables and severed them and that this was done specifically at at around 6 50 p.m which was the exact time that the mask society so essentially what that very innocently worded statement meant was that someone who knew where their fiber optic cables were buried intentionally sabotaged their network and did so at the time specifically time to match the massacre now that shows two things number one it's only the state government the federal government and the network operators themselves who know where those cables are buried regular people like you and i don't have access to that information for obvious reasons so if the network operators are saying they didn't do it so first of all it means it's the government that did it first of all secondly and more importantly it shows that not only did the government intentionally intend to cover up the truth of the massacre by by throttling internet access, but that because of the timing, exactly 6.50 p.m. in both cases, the massacre and the network outage, it shows that the massacre itself as a whole was planned, it was a planned event, and that there was a time that was given that by 6.50, go out and shoot those people. So I knew that if I put out this story when I'm still in Nigeria, I've been threatened with arrest already. So if I put out this story when I'm in Nigeria, I'm not going to leave. They are going to they are going to pick me up, right? And something else that had happened at that time, which made me even more paranoid, was some of the people who had who had been perceived as protest leaders, like people with large followings, like like me, who had gone out to protest and everybody had seen them or whatnot. Some of them had tried to leave the country and they were arrested at the airport, right? And their passports were seized. So and that was how we got to know that there was this thing called a no-fly list. And there were like 200 of us who had been placed on that no-fly list. So that even made me more paranoid that even if I don't leave the country, I can't even fly out because they, you know. So 
I said, okay, I'm going to leave the country before putting out the story, and I'm going to leave the country by road, and that's what happened. So I, I shaved off my beard, <laughs> shaved off my beard. I pretended to be a student going to a school called um, Udegbe North American University in Kotonou, Benin. Um, I found my way to Ghana. Like I spent a lot of my childhood in Ghana, so I'm very familiar with that stretch between Seme and Aflao. So I found my way to Ghana, and. Um, I didn't realize it was going to be a permanent thing that I'm never going to, probably never going to go home again. I thought maybe a couple of months or something. But one month became three months, three months became six months. And I kept doing more stories that kept making me more and more an enemy of state back home. And after like a year, slowly started to understand that I'm probably never going to go back home again. I think when that really sank in was when I was then granted full political asylum by Ghana. And then it really sank in that, wow, I'm a refugee now, and I actually can't go home. Even if I want to, I can't, because going home would violate the terms of, of the asylum that, that I was given. You know, The good thing about that was by granting me refugee status, the Ghanaian government also granted me a Ghanaian travel document, a Ghanaian passport. So for the first time in like two years, I could travel legally. I had still been traveling during this time, but I'd been doing it the African way, like crossing borders and stuff. It, you know, in search of stories, but for the first time I could travel, like take flights, that kind of thing. So, you know, till tomorrow, you know, Ghanaians always find it very weird how I'm always, I'm constant. I always have good things to say about their country. Now they, they, they always find it quite irritating as well, because as far as Ghanaians are concerned, you know, Ghana needs so much work. There's so much that is wrong with Ghana, but the truth is you are never, ever, ever going to catch me saying a bad word about Ghana. It's not possible. Because that, that country basically, like, basically owe my life to the Ghanaian government. So, you know, you, sorry if it irritates you, because <laughs> I, I can tell they're Ghanaian as well. But, you know, Ghana will always be a country that I'm always going to talk up in a way that you might find kind of odd. I mean, David, for, for myself, I lived in Lagos for like three years and two months. So during NSARS, I was also in Lagos. And I actually just returned to Ghana last quarter of last year. So... I can perfectly understand that part. When, and when I spoke to Ghanaians and I described certain things that I saw or happenings, they would tell me, yeah, but it's exactly, is it not the same? I'm like, <laughs> it's not, it's, but it's not the same because at the end of the day, it can be similar, but I don't feel my skin in the game when, those th when certain occurrences happen. So it's like, yes, it's raised, it's an argument. You might even encounter with the something with the police. But at the end of the day, it can be an it's an open argument to an extent. The Ghanaian, the Ghanaian police are not going to shoot you no. in the streets. They're not going to. Exactly. The Nigerian ones absolutely will. Yeah. It also gave me vivid memory because I can remember I was also like one minute drive, five minutes away from Lake Itoge. So I could also hear the gunshots. And it's like a very weird experience as you're just... I mean, initially I was just sitting there. What can you do? Read, trying to get messages that came through reading and eventually at some point i just switched it off and i'm like there's nothing to be done you just have to wait before you even go and access information because it wasn't even as i said the internet was having struggles and everything so i'm writing a book about it actually this is the kind of exclusive that i wanted to have that david Houdin is writing a book about NSAS. so we're definitely going to make sure that people know to expect the book i had a question david some time back when the whole George Floyd thing was happening. I wrote an article personally 
trying to explore the huge chasm between the social media activism that exists now, which is very good, right? You, you, you seem to even suggest in the beginning that you didn't think it was serious and all of that. People made fun of it. And the route towards the legal implications, something that is actually changeable in law, something that has legal ramifications that the search for what I probably would term as the activist view of sanity and what legal journey they have to take to be able to get there, right? It's always a very huge struggle. And this is a global issue. It's not only Nigeria in context that people search for a lot of things through their activist cries, but cannot realistically get it because the framework of getting it legally, and that is what, well, we live in some supposed con- constitutionality and democracy that you won't get. What is your take on that? And what is your take on how maybe we should rethink or have a better way of doing activism in a way that gets us the results that we are searching for? I should mention that I... In as much as people often refer to me as a journalist stroke activist or an activist journalist, I try as much as possible to stay away from that term. I prefer just being a journalist because I think when you combine the two, then you are straying into the realms of becoming a politician. Right? If I'm if I become a politician one day, that's a that's a bridge I will cross when I get to it. But right now, no, I'm absolutely not a politician, so I don't I don't want to be treated as such. And the reason I say this is a lot of the time, because of the way I write and the way I communicate, and because of how publicly opinionated that I am, people often mistake me or people take me to be some sort of leader. I, I understand that there is some sort of leadership implied in what I do, but at the same time, that is not the same thing as being a leader, right? I think if you are going to be a leader, then first of all, you have to be elected. People have to choose you, right? You can't set yourself up as a leader. So I try as much as possible to avoid being typecast as an activist. I thought I'd just mention that. Now, um, to the question that, that you said, I think one of the major issues that I have with activism, especially in this in the in the African context, is that I'm trying to I'm struggling to think of a way to stay to word it in a way that is not going to irritate people that I'm friends with, because I'm also friends with a lot with a lot of activist types. But one major issue I have with activism in the African context is that activism and civil society funding seem to be completely, seem to be joined at the hip. To the point where people don't even understand that they're not the same thing. So the civil society sector, as far as I'm concerned, is a business sector, as far as I'm concerned. It's a corporate sector. Activism is something that you do on a day-to-day basis. The two, obviously, have a symbiotic relationship, right? I myself have benefited from civil society, you know, engagement here and there, interactions here and there. I engage with civil society people. Some of my very good friends are civil society people. They run NGOs and whatnot. But the issue I have is the civil society organization in an African context has sort of swallowed up the meat of what activism actually is because the purpose of activism is to change something that's why you don't um, activism is not a career choice activism is something that you just find yourself thrust into that's the entire point of activism right that you just end up doing something because maybe you had some sort of personal epiphany 
or you've been radicalized in some way, something happened to you, and then you decide that you cannot accept this thing, so you need to change it. And the process of trying to change that thing using whatever practical activity that you carry out is then known as activism, right? That's what activism is. Now, civil society activism has basically taken that basic concept and turned it into this very complex performance, right? It's a dance that people do now. And the purpose of this performance is to get funding. People are going to be offended when I say this, but I'm going to say it anyway. Like, I know people who call themselves activists and they, they are civil society people and they drive around Abuja and they, they are using customized license plates, huge SUVs, on donor money. And, you, and apparently you're an activist. How is that activism? How is that? I'm, I'm, not, I'm not suggesting that the only valid way of being an activist is when, is when the government is, you know, hunting for you, the way they are hunting for me, is, or is when they are shooting at you. That's, what, that's the only way. No, that's not what I'm saying. There are different styles and methods of activism. We know that. But I'm saying that those people, those superstar, rockstar, NGO activists have swallowed up the essence of activism in the African context. Now, everybody wants to be them. Everybody wants to be those guys. So what I've, what I've seen, especially over the past three years, what I've seen is even people who were involved in the protests out of truly altruistic purposes, people who just wanted to see a change in the way the Nigerian police interacts with Nigerians, they, all they wanted was just a change. And they came out to protest. And in the course of that protest, they started engaging and building relationships with these civil society types. I look at some of these people now, and they've become, they've become you know, productions. Right? They become this a simulacrum of what they used to be. Right? And I'm not I'm not here to pass judgment on anyone, you know. Everybody knows their, their individual context, but I'm just saying that I think for activism to actually um, achieve what it sets out to achieve, first and foremost, people need to understand that there's an element of sacrifice involved in it. Right. Even though I said I don't classify myself as an as an activist. I also have to be honest and admit that my work, in some manner of speaking, can be classified as activism. And the truth is that that work has come at a major personal cost. It has, right? It's If I wanted to become an NGO production, I could have done that in 2020 or 2021. I could have done that. Financially, I'd be a lot better off than I am now, definitely. You know, I would have cashed in on this name and reputation that I had built, and I'd have become, you know, a rock star, you know, activist, you know, I'll, I'll be getting funding in the hundreds of thousands of dollars annually. That, you know, I know people who have done this. I know the game. But the thing is, if you genuinely believe in the mission that you've set out to accomplish, if you genuinely believe in what you're doing, you also have to accept that there's an element of sacrifice involved in it. This doesn't mean that you're going to be looking for what to eat. This doesn't mean that you're going to be homeless and couch surfing. This doesn't mean that you're going to be suffering on a day-to-day -day basis. No, I don't suffer. I live well. But it also means that, so for example, I can't, I can't go home. I can't even go to West Africa presently because, you know, after the, the um, very unfortunate sequence of events that led to me ending up in Zimbabwe and then the Zimbabwean authorities exposing the fact that I had political asylum in Ghana, which was supposed to remain secret, um, the Nigerian authorities have, you know, they, made, they did their best to make my existence in Ghana as difficult as possible, you know, and being that even though Ghana, you know, as much as possible 
tries to obey international law, the truth is that Nigeria is the top dog in ECOWAS. And I, and I understood that if I ever placed the Ghanaian authorities in a situation where they had to choose between me and their relationship with Nigeria, but obviously choose Nigeria. They don't have a choice. That's a rational decision to make. So I didn't want to, I didn't even wait for them to be placed in that situation. So I had to leave, right? Even though Ghana is my home now, you know, I consider Ghana to be my home, but I had to leave and I really didn't want to, you know, which is why I said at the start of this conversation that you shouldn't ask me where I am. So, but these are the things that come with the territory. If you really believe in what you're doing, you have to accept that there is always a possibility something like this will happen. That is what activism means, right? There is an element of sacrifice involved. I think that is why activism in the African context, at least, is not achieving the goals that it's supposedly set up to achieve. Because a lot of the people who are doing activism now are performing activism. They're not actually doing it. They're just performing it, right? There's a difference between doing something and performing it going through the motions you know there's a certain there are kpis that you have to meet there are certain there's a certain way you have to tweet there's a certain regularity with which you have to tweet there are some messages you have to embed in your in your public posts there's a way you have to present yourself when you when you have a speaking engagement there are certain topics you can't go near so for example um last year when i became aware there was a story i did last year about the infiltration of nigeria's intelligence services into Amnesty International in Nigeria, which is obviously by all accounts, that's a big story. And that's a that's something that the public must know. That if anything happens to you and you're getting you're getting in contact with Amnesty International because you think Amnesty International is an NGO that is protecting your rights and whatnot, they are passing across your information to the DSS. You know, which is very important information. And the entire like none of my colleagues in the journalism space who are who consider themselves to be close to the CSO people, none of them will touch it. None of them will touch it. So I can tell you for free, if you know in Nigeria, a publication called Premium Times is one of the largest online media publications in Nigeria. Premium Times had that story maybe six months before I had it. They didn't touch it. They didn't publish it. Because they and Amnesty International are in, they're part of the same game. You know, Premium Times is also, they're funded by the um, Omidia Network. I think, is it 500000 or or a million dollars a year in annual funding from the Omidia Network? Then they have funding from like Osiwa, MacArthur, you know, the usual suspects, right? So, <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, <laughs> I told you I was going to name names. So, knowing what, obviously, knowing that they are all pretty much in the same racket, why would they tell on each other? So, it fell down to me an independent journalist from outside of the system who wasn't even resident in Nigeria to tell this very important story that if anything happens to you, never under any circumstances hand over your information to Amnesty International because these guys are, you know, hand hand in glove with the government. You know? So that's that's why I think activism to a very large extent is not doing much in our context. It's not because activism can't achieve much, but it's because the people who are doing it are doing it the wrong way and for the wrong reasons, with the wrong motives. Me and Isaac, we are both from the entrepreneurship space. And a lot of what he said, I mean, rang bells immediately. I mean, the, the, the final consequence might be different, but a lot of entrepreneurs in our ecosystem do not necessarily, they, they should set out to solve the problem. They're not building for the market, they are building for, for investors. For, for investors, and then probably, especially in the Ghanaian context, it's not just even 
private investors, there's a lot of grant money. So eventually people who are, again, exactly the ones that say, oh, we are solving for climate, for social, are the ones that are the most in tune with going toward, I mean, I'm not criticizing the going towards the grant. I'm going, the, criti the criticism is on losing sight of what the actual purpose of this thing should be. Exactly. So it sounded very similar, but maybe, con exactly. But the consequence is even, I mean, even crazier. I, I would like to just highlight that, Daniel, you are still a citizen of Ghana, so you should allow David to go into... But, you know, it's, I mean, it's funny. It's funny that a lot of these things exist. And I'm happy that David, you are here to uncover. What I would like to talk next, we're going to talk about Nigeria's president, which is a huge controversy. But before that, I want to talk about your economic ideology and political ideology. I mean, recently you gave a speech where you sort of, you know, basically said that what we are practicing as democracy in Africa is a joke, Nigeria particularly. And I think that um, to give credence to the sets of uprisings across the continent right now, you know, some of these African presidents who have by default been dictators in their countries, but practicing some form of democracy, at least that's what we've been told, are now facing rebellions. And there are a lot of cries around what that means for us. I would like to have your personal take on what your political philosophy is, um, especially because you have written about, I think one of the stories that I read that I was interested in was you critiquing uh, Nigeria's seeming obsession with socialism, which you said was dead and didn't have any um, benefits for, for us. And there is a certain obsession with, for example, agriculture and the government wanting to use agriculture and everything, but uh, subsistence farming basically has made no progress for anyone. Um, so I would want you to zone in on your political ideology, maybe also your economic ideology of what really works, what doesn't work on the African context. So, I, first of all, I don't think there's any difference between political and economic ideology. I think, in fact, economic ideology is a subset of political ideology. I think, um, first, when, when, when you said that there are um, African leaders who, who, are, who are dictatorial, but they practice some form of democracy, I think what you meant to say is that they hold elections, right? Um, that speech that you referenced, I, I mentioned in that speech that China and North Korea also hold elections. So unlike this erroneous idea we've been given that the fact of holding elections means that you're an electoral democracy, that's actually not the case, right? Um, in fact, I would, go, I would go as far as to say that the elections held in China are probably more, even more credible than the elections held in Nigeria. That definitely doesn't make China a democracy, right? So the concept of democracy goes far beyond again, performing certain things, you know, it's about substance rather than form. So you can have the paraphernalia of what looks like a democratic state. You can have the Freedom of Information Act. You can have separation of powers, tiers of government, levels of government. You have courts and legal systems. You have all of these institutions in place. But if at the end of the day, all of them are set up to fail, and all of them have this key man risk that there's always one person, there's always one guy at the top whose word is born. Then that's not a democracy. You know, in an actual functioning democracy, it's often the case that the courts will overrule the government. Very often. 
you know that's what an actual democracy looks like but in a place like nigeria now where the president basically has the power to decide whether judges get paid or not how is that a democracy so if the judge gives gives a, a ruling that the president doesn't like the president can make the judge go hungry so obviously the judge is never going to give a ruling the president doesn't like so that's not a democracy even though you have the paraphernalia of a democratic state it's not a democracy my understanding of, of what a useful um, political system for an African state would look like would be a state that first and foremost prioritizes um, the development of people, first and foremost. And this understanding that the reason why um, Africa has been disadvantaged, historically disadvantaged going into the present, isn't for lack of resources, it's not for lack of people, it's not for lack of anything except human capital development. The entire reason why Africa could get colonized in the first place was because Africans were in a situation where they were basically shopping, right? If the human capital is sufficiently developed, as is the case in parts of Asia or wherever, then I think there are certain conversations we're not going to be having anymore. So first and foremost, development of human capital, education, Things like education, those are those those are the very basic things. So, whatever the political system is, whether it's a liberal democracy like in Botswana, whether it's a rigid authoritarian state like in Rwanda, what I'm more concerned about is what HDI outcomes are being created. That's what I'm more concerned about, right? Because previously, I, I think I used to make the mistake of getting a little bit too bogged down in. Um, criticisms or in praises of certain places. Like I used to praise Botswana and, and Mauritius and Madagascar a lot because they're you know, very high on the you know, on the liberal democracy index rankings, you know, on, and Namibia until I found out that those ones too, they have their own issues. And I conversely, I used to criticize the likes of Rwanda a lot, you know, human rights abuses, blah, 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 blah. Yeah, we know that. But what I've come to understand now, I think as I get older, is pretty much you know, everything is kind of like a, a consequence of how developed the people are, right? If the people are, for example, are economically empowered, it's almost impossible to subjugate an economically empowered people, right? Because once people are economically empowered, before they become economically empowered, obviously they would have been educated. There's a certain level that they would be at. It's almost impossible to subjugate them. So the reason why... Um, some guy in Africa can come into office and then say that he's going to change the constitution and he's going to run for third, fourth, fifth, sixth term. And he, you know, he doesn't really face that much pushback. And then he goes to his Congress and obviously has a puppet, a puppet Congress and he's able to force it through. And there is back and forth this argument and you actually have people arguing in his favor. The reason for that is that the people are not developed. In a society where you have a human development index index of maybe 0.9 or 0.92, let me say a, a prime minister in New Zealand cannot wake up and say, I'm changing the constitution. You can't do that. And it's not just a case of, it's not just a matter of the institutions that exist. The people themselves will never let it happen because the people see themselves as sovereign. They see themselves as important. The people think that they matter. In the African context, the people don't really think that. Africans have this sort of very sort of meek, sort of, you know, supine 
way of existing which they have had for centuries and the major reason for that is that they are not empowered right so my number one metric with which to measure the usefulness of the polytheism in africa's context is to what extent does it empower people to what extent does it give people the sense that they matter that they are important that their lives have value that's the number one thing so following on from that i think the economic system that tends to lend itself best toward empowerment of people in general generally speaking this is no hard and fast rule but generally speaking tends tends toward the economic system where people have freedoms to to chase um, economic self-actualization right which tends to be capitalism however having said that this is not an endorsement of you know full-on american style capitalism either because if you read some of the histories of these countries which identify now as capitalists, you find out that there are also certain characteristics, unique things that they did, which might not necessarily be, be classified as capitalists. So like Japan, for example, I think this is a very good example because I didn't know it myself until recently. After the Second World War, when Japan was basically being occupied by the US and the US needed to turn Japan into an industrial society, a successful industrial society as, as a buffer against the Soviet Union and China. One of the things that was done in Japan was that the entire system of, of, um, of land holding, the land tenure system, was abolished. So instead of having a few huge um, landlords and then most of the population being tenants, land was actually redistributed in Japan. So I found it very interesting that land redistribution was understood as far back as 1945 to the key to economic empowerment of people. But if you talk about land redistribution now, say in South Africa, you cause a civil war. So I, I find that very interesting because it's like the goalposts have been shifted in the middle of the game. So we understood that land land redistribution was useful for the economic empowerment of Japan in 1945. But in Southern Africa now, where a lot of the land is still skewed toward a few big landlords who were, you know, settler colonialists, somehow you're not allowed to talk about that, even though it could have the same outcome. Which is why I said, even though I tend toward capitalism, I still think that there are some there are some little tweaks here and there. So for example, land redistribution, I think, will have to be that conversation will need will have to be had in Southern Africa, whether anybody likes it or not. That's just the reality. But overall, I believe that anything that tends toward economic freedoms generally speaking, free trade, generally speaking, especially uh, anything that emphasizes intra-African trade and anything that develops people, respects their human rights and gives them a sense of importance in the world. That's the, that's the political and economic system that is useful for Africa. So I'm not necessarily prescribing one rigid system, one rigid way of doing things because doing that to be pointless there's never going to no, nobody's ever going to adopt one rigid way of doing anything but i'm saying whatever way is chosen whether it's the strong-fisted kagami way or it's the liberal seretekama way in botswana whichever one it is because i think those are like the two ends of the spectrum what i'm most concerned about is the outcomes that they produce do they produce empowered people psychologically and economically empowered people do they produce you know, a growth-oriented market that is integrated with its neighbors. That's what I'm most concerned about. That's a very interesting way to answer that question. Now, let's go into the people. Let's go into the personalities of, first of which, is going to be the president of Nigeria, 
if anyone knows the internet, you are definitely someone who has criticized the president of Nigeria more than anyone probably has on the on the face of the internet or in the world. And you started teasing even before his uh, election into government, which you have said that he wasn't elected and the, the election was rigged, etc. Since when did you start having an interest in the president of Nigeria to know how did that interest start? I, I want to ask an interesting question. Was it related to your research of Boko Haram or your research of the state institutions in Nigeria, which is institutions, one of the things I want to touch on too, but before we go there, where did that interest start? In his case, this his was actually a completely separate story, which wasn't actually necessarily connected to stories I've done before. Um, so I grew up in Lagos. Um, my dad actually worked with him briefly. I wouldn't say worked with him, but my dad had had dealings with him briefly. So my um, at the time, my dad was the um, was the director of lands in Lagos State. Which, if you are familiar with Lagos State, um, let me put it this way: Lagos has the largest subnational economy in Nigeria. Lagos alone is responsible for about 120 billion dollars worth of GDP in Nigeria. So the real estate market in Lagos is one of the hottest on the entire African continent. Um, so the person who is the director of lands in Lagos is sitting on one of the most powerful seats in African civil service, basically. But my dad, being the straight-laced Jehovah witness that he was, he didn't necessarily recognize that. Um, all he wanted to do was earn his salary, work, earn his salary, and go home. Other people would have become billionaires sitting in that seat. But the man was, again, was a very straight-laced guy. Right? He didn't actually make real money until he retired, and he went into private practice. All the while, he was a civil servant. He was just, he was a civil servant in the real sense of it, wearing his safari and, you know, with his government issued with 504 and, you know, he wasn't a rich man at the time. So, his dealings with Tinubu, I think in the 80s, well, that was when Tinubu bought his first, uh, his first two properties, his first two pieces of land in Lagos. And the land allocations, my dad actually signed on them and forwarded them to the governor for final approval. And he did so without requesting for anything which was pretty much unheard of at the time. Bear in mind that my dad was still was still kind of new in the job and he didn't really understand the power of the seats he was sitting on. So from the point of view of Tinubu, it was like, wow, so this, so there are people like this, you know? So, he, I, so my dad told me, the man sent him a gift that he had this, this you know, these tailors who, who don't need to measure you, they just look at you and then they, they, they do something customized which fits you perfectly. So he gave my dad like a customized shirt, customized with his initials, and very nice gift like that. And that was it. That was the extent of their interaction then in the 80s. Then when he became a governor in 1999, one of the first things he did was he reached out to my dad again. He wanted my dad to come work for him. At, at that time, my dad had retired more than 10 years back from the civil service, but he wanted my dad to come back to the civil service. And I said, no, I can't come back. I can come as a consultant. But I can't work in the civil service any longer. He turned him down three times before he finally took it. Finally, he wanted he he wanted my dad to run for um, local government chair of Badagri because my dad is from Badagri. So at the time, he was trying to essentially take over the whole of Lagos politically, and one of the and he wanted to do that by installing proxies, by installing vassals. And obviously, the Hundain family is one of the most prominent families from Badagri, so he wanted my dad to be his face there. He wanted my dad to be his proxy 
in charge of that game. My dad obviously was a Jehovah Witness. Jehovah's Witnesses aren't allowed to take part in politics. My dad turned him down. So it ended up being my uncle, funny story, who is obviously the same surname, who ended up taking that game. He became the local government. Anyway, that's another story. So all through this time, one thing my dad constantly, because my dad wasn't, he was very different from me. My dad was the kind of person to just be quiet. He would never come out in public to let his voice be heard. That was not my dad at all. He was a, he was an establishment man. Let me, let me put it that way. He was never the kind, even when the establishment pissed him off, he would keep quiet and talk about it at home. He would never go out. But when he's talking about it at home, I heard a lot, right? And one of the things I knew very well, right from when I was growing up, was that this fellow, this Bola, well, the person known as Bola Bettinubu, this fellow is a criminal, like a full-on actual criminal with links to the underworld. And I'm not saying that like to be funny or anything. Like this is a statement of like I can repeat this statement in court. This person is a criminal, right? Um, but it's one thing to know it like colloquially. It's, it's one thing to hear it because your dad said it and you know people. And you've had several stories from it's one thing to do that it's another thing when you now have receipts in your hand right so for many years it has been rumored it's, it's, it's not a new story it's not a new thing like it has been well known on the streets that Tinubu was involved in the drug trade at some point it was very well known but it's one thing for it to be well known on the streets it's another thing for you to be able to prove it right and for the longest time nobody could really prove it now, in the run-up to the 2023 election, last year, I decided that, you know what, in 2015, when Buhari was elected, I remember I, when, when the results were being announced, because I was, I was working at BHM, then I remember I was in the office, the TV was like, there was like a, it was like an open plan office, so there was like a TV that was hung up there, and we we're all watching the results. And I remember, it, I felt like I was in Twilight Zone, because when the results were being announced, I knew that Buhari was going to win. I felt as if the world was falling apart. I felt as if my life was ending because I felt like, oh my God, I came back from the UK. I came to Nigeria to build a new life. And then less than two years later, everything is falling up because I knew exactly what was going to happen, right? Because I came back to join the Africa Rising story, but I knew that as soon as this guy becomes president, there's, there's not going to be any Africa Rising. The economy is going to collapse. Everything's going to go to, you know, I don't want to swear on your podcast. And that's exactly what happened. But... While that while the results were being announced, all my contemporaries, my colleagues in the office, they were popping champagne literally. They literally uncorking cheap champagne. They were happy. Everyone was celebrating. Because everyone thought that this guy represented change. And I remember thinking to myself at the time that Nigerian journalism has this is the biggest failure of public information that I have ever witnessed. That a three-time coup plotter. And a war criminal is being it has been successfully sold to the Nigerian people as change and as someone who's going to solve their problems. And I remember it was the most heartbreaking thing. So in the run-up to the 2023 election, I told myself that if I don't do anything else as a journalist, one thing I'm going to do is in the run-up to this election, I'm going to ensure that people have information about the person that I think is the worst person on the ballot. Right. In 2015, I thought Buhari was the worst person on the ballot, and that's who won. So I thought in the run of the 2023, I'm going to make sure that the information people didn't have about Buhari in 2015, and then everyone later on started crying that we didn't know, we were fooled, how could we have known, blah, 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 blah. 
no one is going to have that excuse this time around. You are going to know, right? I'm going to ensure that you know, right? I have a big platform. I'm going to use it. I'm not just going to do the story. I'm going to turn it into a documentary and I'm going to paste it on your eyeballs. You are going to see it, right? I was determined. So in the process of putting that story together, what, what I wanted to do was not just traffic gossip, not just talk about stuff that I knew but couldn't prove, but show receipts, like show evidence that this person, you shouldn't make the mistake of voting, voting him into office because this is a criminal, right? This is an actual, this is someone who has a background in organized crime, right? This is a member of the underworld, right? You are, you are, you are essentially going to make, um, what's, what's this character from, from, from the Godfather? I forget his name, but you are going to make that person you know, your president, right? You're going to make Pablo Escobar president, you know. So that's how I was determined to do in this story. And that's why I, you know, I, I'm, I'm not the first person to attempt to tell that story because I think Sahara Reporters tried in 2008 to tell the story. They actually got hold of the court documents as well, but they did, again, journalistic depth is a problem in Nigeria, right? Because it's one thing to have documents that say something is another thing to be able to properly explain what those documents mean to the regular person because you know nigerians are literate but not necessarily you know there's a difference between knowing how to read and knowing how to comprehend they are two different things a lot of nigerians know how to read but have very poor comprehension so if you just put something in front of their eyeballs you've not done anything you have to explain it and you have to break it down and you have to do it in a way that doesn't make them lose interest and close the page after two minutes, right? Which is where I think I, I, you know, had an advantage. That's where I succeeded. So I wasn't the first person to try to tell the story, but I was determined to be the last. Let me let me just put it that way. Um, and I think to an extent, I actually achieved that goal because the entire point of telling that story was to make it very clear that this person, I don't care who else you vote or you don't vote on the ballot, but this person. For whatever reason, you shouldn't make this person, you shouldn't mistakenly make this person your president because it would be a continuation of 2015 to 2023 and even worse. Because for all of Buhari's failures, at least one thing you can't accuse Buhari of was being an organized criminal. He was a war criminal, but he wasn't a drug dealer. You know, this is even worse. So, you know, the choice is up to you. That's what I was trying to accomplish with that story. Unfortunately, Nigeria being what Nigeria is, um, the results that were announced as the results of the election and the actual outcome of the elections were at variance. So here we are. We wrap up on this and we move on to the next thing. For me, we don't spend too much on that. Cause I mean, there are different levels of this story. I know you've written about it. I have read everything that you have written on when it comes to, um, to the news and this presidency. For me, I'm interested in what's next. What do you think how does this end, especially with you? How does it end for Nigeria or for me? I think, I think for you, um, the reason why I say for you is how far are you willing to take it, whether uh, the president continues to, yeah. I understand the question. And what I would say is, so something, there was, there was something, I, I was watching a video from, I think it was Dave Chappelle. This was a couple of years ago. And he was talking about something his mom told him mom told him that um, when you are getting into any any relationship or endeavor or 
you know, whatever it is that you're getting yourself into, at the start, tell yourself what your price is. Tell yourself what um, what it is that is the extent you are willing to go for this thing that you are going to pursue. And if the price gets too high, leave. I'll be honest with you and say that there have been a couple of times when I've sat down and I've had that conversation with myself that has the price gotten too high now? And what exactly am I doing here? Because in addition to, you know, obviously you know, not being able to not being able to be at home in Nigeria or at home in Ghana now, there's also the issue of there are relationships that have lost. Right? There are people who you know, like with women, for example, there there are relationships that potentially could have could have or might have succeeded, might have had long term potential, if I was able to be back home, you know, and have a settled life with them there. But, you know, they can't live on a plane with you. Basically, they can't live the way you live. That at a moment's notice, the way I live now, it's if I get a call from a trusted informant now that somebody is coming to get me in the next 30 minutes now, wherever I am in the world, I can be on a plane in 15 minutes. That's how I live. Wherever I am on the planet, I can be on a plane in 15 minutes. Like it's just a matter of getting myself to an airport. Passport is constantly on me. I constantly have some money on my card. I'm, I'm constantly, you know, dressed up to a certain extent. You know, I don't live a normal life the way people live. So there, there are certainly issues with that kind of existence. There are certainly drawbacks with that kind of existence. However, I also believe that as much as possible, you should try to finish what you start. I believe that um, when, when, I, when I set off on this journey, nobody begged me to do it. Nobody made me do it. There was no, it wasn't my destiny or anything. I'm the one that made a decision. I should tell you a story. Why, why I made the switch from being sort of focused on the foreign space to being focused on my immediate environment and trying to change it. Something happened in 2017. So my dad died, right? I'm not the first person to lose my dad, but the circumstances under which it happened did something to my mental architecture. So bear in mind that I've, I've mentioned a couple of times that my family by Nigerian standards, by African standards was at the very least upper middle class, at least. I mean, in terms of assets and everything, when you add everything together, my parents were, were US dollar millionaires. So I'm not even sure you can call us upper middle class. By African standards, they were rich, right? So we're a very comfortable family. So a lot of the issues that Nigerians have, we didn't have. So if there's no light in Nigeria, we had a 35 kVA standby generator with a 1,000 liter diesel tank. So that was not our business. If there's insecurity, we lived in a, in a gated community, very beautiful places on a, on a hill, and our house was right on the hillside. So there's a there's a lovely outhouse with a view of the valley. Like we lived in like we lived in a Disney cartoon. Let me let me put it that way. My parents did their best to give us, you know. A very 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 comfortable background like that's one thing i have to say regardless of whatever issues i might have had with them when it came to being providers they were excellent at doing that so i always had the impression that no matter what is happening in nigeria no matter what what is you're reading on twitter or on the pages of your newspapers if you have a certain level of income and you've insulated yourself a certain way those things are not really your business you'll be fine that's what I thought until as recently as 2017, when my dad had a stroke, a partial stroke and a survivable stroke. 
it just so happened that when it happened, he was upstairs. He wasn't downstairs. If he was downstairs, probably he would still be alive today. He was 66. But he was upstairs. It was raining that day. He was upstairs. So we needed to somehow get him downstairs and get him into a vehicle to go to the hospital. Right? It was a partial stroke. Like half of his face had collapsed. I could tell it's a stroke, even though he wasn't diagnosed, but I could tell. Now, the problem was, it was just myself, my sister, and my mom who were in the house. I had moved out by then. So I was actually, I was doing some shopping then. I was at the supermarket. I was with my ex-wife. And I got a call from my mom. And I, I don't talk to her very often. So I know when she calls, it's important. And I, I called back and she said, your dad is dying. So I got in my car and I floated all the way to, to the house. because they, they did like 10 minutes away. And so it was me, my sister, and my mom in the house. And we, the man was like 125 kilograms or something. We couldn't lift him. So there's a hospital close to the gates of the estate where, where we lived. So I went there and I told them, I begged them. I said, please, can you, like, they first told me that their, their ambulance doesn't work. The engine is bad. I said, okay, I have an SUV here because I was with like, a, I had taken a, a Nissan Pathfinder from the house. Like, can you please, like, like three of you follow me to the house because we need help to lift it. I'll pay you. I offered them one. I offered each of them 11,000, 10,000 naira. So that's total like 30,000 I offered them, right? He said, no, um, we can't leave our post without permission from our guy. The child said they can't, they couldn't help. So I had to go back home. By this time, I had already called the Lagos State Ambulance Service, the emergency number 112. They said they were coming. 10 minutes, 20 minutes, 30 minutes, 40 minutes, 50, one hour, one hour, 20 minutes, one hour, 40 minutes. And I was, he died in front of us. So he was literally on the floor and he died in front of us. Like we saw when the life left his, 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 his face, basically. He died in front of us. And eventually, like two hours and like 10 minutes after making the call, that was when the ambulance from Lagos State showed up. Bear in mind that this, we lived like 10 minutes from Magara General Hospital. Like this is a very accessible area. It's a very centrally located area. There's no reason for an ambulance not to show up. And he just didn't show up. And then he showed up. And then they examined the body and then the guy took me aside to tell me, you know, he's gone. And of course, I already knew. But none of it was real yet. It was like I was having an out-of-body experience. I couldn't, they hadn't sunk in. And then I saw all of them packing up and leaving. And the body was on the ground. And I was like, where are you going? What's happening? And they're like, oh, yeah, we don't carry dead bodies. And like, I thought they were joking. I, I, I couldn't believe it. But they got in their vehicle. They got in the ambulance and they drove off. And that was it. So then I then had to start, I, I went on Google, I had to start using, looking for like private ambulance operators who would be willing to ferry a dead body because apparently that's a thing. And it took like 30 minutes to find one. And they said they would, they would charge 50,000 naira. I said, okay. And still, still took them almost another two hours to show up eventually. By that time, the body had already started, there was, there was already a smell. Then they came with their body bag and then they put him in and they zipped it up. And then we all had to, like five of us, full grown men, had to like lift this because it was that heavy, right? And even on the way down, there was a little incident where, I mean, the, the back of his head hit the tiles with a lot of force and there was a huge sound. And even though I knew he was already dead, like that still traumatizes me six years later. I mean, however many years later it is now, seven years later. And so we got to the hospital and we went to the morgue and really that should have been that. And then we got to the morgue and then they're like, oh, they can't accept the 
body. They can't deposit the body. I'm like, why? They're like, it doesn't have a death certificate. I'm like, okay, so what on earth do you want me to do? Like, so I should drive around Lagos, right, looking for a hospital or a doctor that is willing to issue a death certificate. And in the end, it just turned out all they wanted was money. So I had to count out 11,000 naira. And then they issued a death certificate on the spot, right? They wrote some run. So on my dad's death certificate, what is supposed to be my dad's death certificate? The cause of death is written as psoriasis. Psoriasis, because he had psoriasis. Psoriasis is basically like, it's like eczema. It's a skin condition. You can't die of it. But that's what's written on his death certificate. I died of psoriasis. Because apparently if they wrote like heart attack or stroke or something, then they, then they would have had, they would have, they would have had to do an, an autopsy. And because the, the certificate was issued illegally, they couldn't do that. So they just had to write something. And that's how my dad was deposited in the morgue. That entire experience, what it did to me was like it shattered my illusions about being protected or being shielded from the reality of Nigeria. And at that point, I understood that it's either I accept that that will keep on happening to people I, I love and it will happen to me too, or I have to burn, burn this thing down somehow because i tried to you know i tried to hold someone accountable i i i made calls i wanted to know why didn't the ambulance show up they tossed me around for a few weeks and afterwards they told me to go to court in nigeria when someone tells you to go to court it's like basically telling you to fuck off right because the, the assumption is that you're not going to get anything out of the court you can be there for 10 years if you like the, the court is in nigeria people pay to avoid going to court right so when they told me that I should go to court, if, if I want any further redress, I should go to court. You know, you know what that means? So when I when I came into this space, what I, I, I guess what I told myself and what I keep telling myself is that any compromise that I make now, is it going to bring my dad back? And the answer is no, it's not. So I think when I get to the point when I actually feel as if, okay, I, I I have sufficiently, if you like, avenged my dad, if you like. <laughs> That's a very wrong word to use. But if, if I get to the point where I, I, I feel like my dad's death as senseless and meaningless and, and, and avoidable as it was, that it, um, his death has actually done something, has actually achieved some sort of greater good. When I get to that point, that's when I feel like, okay, my mission is done. Right now, do I feel like I'm at that point? No, I don't, which is why we're having this conversation. This is stories that people recount if you read social media in Nigeria of the terrible institutions that now failed them. And that's what takes me to the final part of this conversation on institutions. Perhaps that is your motivation to target institutions because a lot of your work, yes, some of them have been focused on some individuals, but have been specifically targeting on routine institutions that you believe have been corrupt for a lot of years. I mean, like you referenced, as big institutions as the Amnesty International in Nigeria, technology companies, government institutions, state institutions, local government institutions, hospital facilities, all of that. What has that taught you about institutions in Africa, the decay in institutions in Africa, and the way forward in fixing them, if you reflect on it. Because if I was saying I should go into it deeper, it's going to take us a long time to do that. So I want to just have your take on 
how much decay is in African institutions? I mean, we all think that at some level, there are problems that need to be fixed. And when people talk about fixing Africa, they say the first thing that has to be fixed is our institutions. You say, you have said previously in this conversation that it's the human capital that needs to be fixed. It's the humans that go on to work and create the institutions. They become the institutions. How terrible are African institutions right now? And what do you think that, I know part of your work is shining the light on the truth, but what do you think is the way forward in somehow reclaiming that, that lost cause? I think I'm using using my 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 presence in the journalism space in Nigeria as a case in point. I think going on from what I said earlier about the human capital being the, the basic unit of governance of, of results in the country, it ultimately will boil down to leadership. And when I say using my myself as a case in point, what I've discovered is that since I since I came to prominence in this space. In, in Nigeria, whether or not there are Nigerian um, platforms and journalists who have been bought and paid for, whether or not they collect brand, brand overlooks, whether or not they lack depth, whether or not they want to touch touch certain stories, just by existing, I've made it such that it's now nearly impossible to do some of the things they used to do before. So before they, it used to be, it used to be the case that after they have this thing they call editors meeting, which is basically a euphemism for like a cartel where they get together and decide what's going to be in the news and what is not right so depending on who has paid for what what is not going to be in the news the editors have a meeting yeah that used to be a thing i don't know if it's still a thing but that was that was very much a thing they call the editors meeting so whether or not they have editors meeting now it's public knowledge that there is one guy or there are a few people independent people who have very large platforms too, who will always touch this story, whether whether you touch it or not. And if you don't touch it and they do, it even makes you look bad. So now, because of that, there has been a, the, the needle has been shifted by force, kicking and screaming, but it has been shifted by force. So drawing on from that into the, the, the institutional space in Africa, I think if the leadership for once actually has that sincerity of purpose and has that that understanding of sacrifice that leadership is not about building generational wealth for you and your family primarily that's not the purpose of leadership and that even if you want to build generational wealth for you and your family the more sustainable way of doing it will be to do your job properly right and that's what will guarantee that your country will be stable enough for that generational wealth to matter so that you won't have to Keep on running abroad every time you have a cough, that kind of thing. I think if there is leadership that has that sincerity of purpose and that understands its job, no, regardless of how compromised the people under them are, regardless of how decayed and how lacking in capacity the institutions are, once the people pick up on it, once they pick up that sense that there is leadership that actually genuinely wants things to get better and that actually seems to have an idea of what it is doing people will naturally start to gravitate toward it one one wonderful thing that i think i've seen about africans in my i mean i'm only 33 so you know there are people who are far older than me but in my short time one wonderful thing i've come to understand about africans is that they have this way of catching on to things very quickly so regardless of how far behind they are compared to the rest of the all it takes is just 
one thing or a few things happening and all of a sudden they rocket up so and you can see this even in in spaces like technology so 20 years ago you wouldn't mention african technology in the same sentence you know 20 years ago nigeria barely had basic gsm service basic gsm coverage internet was non-existent right just 20 years ago uh, 20 years ago my sister was uh, she was in the she was just she was i think she was doing her master's degree in the uk at the time she had finished her first degree at Queen Mary university she was at the university of westminster doing her master's and i think at that time everything was already internet based we were buying, buying stuff online at amazon all of that stuff to us in nigeria that was like it was like another world we, we, we had that stuff was chalk and cheese now the nigeria as a country can't function without the internet everything we do is, is internet based the payments it, if there is no internet accessibility in nigeria for a day there might be a war the banks will collapse there will be issues everything is technology based and everybody has picked up on it the older man in the streets has a phone she knows how to make use ussd to make payments from her bank to someone else's bank you know things that her contemporaries in switzerland cannot even do you know so africans have this funny way of catching up to things when there's an enabling environment so i think if there is a leadership in place and people can sense that there is a sincerity of purpose here that this guy gets it if people sense that they will pick up on it and then even the parts of the system that have been corroded that have been compromised you will be surprised at how people you don't even know People who you don't even realize that they are afraid, that they that they that they have the same mission you have, they'll just appear out of nowhere. I've seen it in my own case where I thought I was just on a one-man mission. And along the way, I've, one funny thing I keep discovering is you have friends you didn't realize you had. In places you didn't realize you had friends. You have friends in the government house. You know, in at, like at the very highest level, you have friends and you you would never have believed. Because you would just imagine that all of them up there, they are all, they all have horns growing out of their heads. That's not necessarily the case. You'll be surprised that the places, the help that I've got from places I didn't see it from, that I didn't see it coming from. You'll be surprised the people even outside Nigeria, even in the diaspora, outside Africa, who keep take very keen notice of everything that is going on at home, and they just they just keep watching. And once they notice that this person seems to have purity of purpose, sincerity of purpose. You'd be surprised if the, you get information, you get logistical support, you get things that you didn't, you didn't even expect and you didn't even want. And they just show up at your, your moment of need. You know, When, for example, you are being chased or you are being hunted by the government, you know, they are sending diplomatic letters up and down, you will not know, you will not realize there's somebody in the, in the diplomatic service who likes you. Because they are, they've seen the work you are doing, and then you are getting at the same time that the Ghanaian government is getting information, you are also getting it at the same time. Because there's somebody who is standing in for you there. You know, I think that's just how these things work. If people sense that you are you are for real, right? If people sense that this one is not just here to eat to, to eat his own share, if people sense that this person actually cares about his mission, people will pick up on it. And you'll be surprised at how rapidly institutions that appear to be completely beyond redemption can suddenly very rapidly. That's one thing I'll, I'll keep on saying about Africans. I've seen it in so many ways and in so many spaces. No matter how hopeless they look at any point in time, 
give them hope and you'll be surprised at how quickly they will how quickly everything will turn how quickly everything will change so you know i i just think once there's that leadership in place which is why i like i i i had such a i have such a personal investment for example in the candidacy of the peter obi in nigeria because not because peter obi is a messiah or is a savior not because he's an angel but simply because this is someone who has that demonstrated capacity to actually just do the basics right that's it just those basics nothing more right no one is asking you to be liquid you right or to be you know john f kennedy or, or roosevelt nobody's asking for that dwight eisenhower we don't need that just be peter will be that's enough once people sense that there is somebody in power whose primary occupation in office is not to personalize the organs of states and to use state capture to basically turn the economy into his private piggy bank. Once people sense that this is somebody in office whose job is actually to lead, to actually be a president, people will pick up on it. Everybody, civil servants, regular people, everybody will pick up on it. That's just how it works. The reason why these institutions appear so beyond redemption is that it's always very easy to tell. And it's the same thing in Ghana, by the way. It's the same thing across most of Africa. As soon as a new guy comes in or a new lady comes in, Within two weeks, everybody can immediately tell. Oh, okay, these these ones have just come to. It's their turn, right? Once somebody comes in and people says that this this one is not here because it's his turn, people start sitting up by themselves. This is the discussion I had. Like I would say, the first four years when I came to to Africa when I was in Ghana, that was a discussion I often had because people were telling me it's the leadership, it's the leadership. And it's still something I struggle with so many years after. Because, of course, I, I agree if the leadership is right. But the question is, who elects the leadership? And it's like the result is, seems to me, what comes out is so systemic that it, I find it hard to imagine that any solution will come out of the system, including whoever gets elected by the masses until that change has happened and that's like of course it's like kind of a chicken and egg problem to an extent but now over the last year what i feel is rather that because of let's say technology access to communication that there is the opportunity for these people that i now call non-systemic so let's say someone like you somebody will now reach out to you and if it's 10, 15, 20 years ago, you would have never been in touch. So you would feel you're the only guy out there that drives people almost mad because it's like, how can others not see? But then you start to realize, no, it's people who see it exactly. People who do it in pocket. And I think that's something even on the podcast, even though I would say, yeah, you are the first investigative journalist. But what you see is like people driving change that it always is almost as they are alone. But then once they go out into it and they have that purity, like that kind of leadership that you describe, maybe in not in the not necessarily in a private capacity, but it's still the same. Once that leadership shows people gravitate, actually gravitate to it, that there is more people like that. But it's just the government part or the election part that I find very hard. I mean, a special set of circumstances. That remains the intractable problem. That remains the problem. That process of actually getting into that position of power. 
That remains the issue. That's the problem that we are currently trying to solve in Nigeria because they, even even when you win the election, they simply won't declare you the, the winner. Yeah. So that's the issue we are trying to face now, right? And I think it's it's actually a good thing that we've got to this point now where we're having an open showdown with that system at its most elemental. That the system is simply saying, okay, um, I have run out of I have run out of of distractions, right? And at this point, all I'm telling you is, no, I'm not giving you. And then now, it's now on you to fight back. I'm happy it, I'm happy it has got to this point now because I think this is the final hurdle now, right? If somehow Nigeria can make it such that one of these people that, you have, that you've described, these um, insurgent leaders, if you like, can get into that office which is by the highest office in the land, most powerful seat in the land, and which, whether by by design or by providence, has been made to almost be almost kind of like an autocratic seat. If somebody gets in there and the person's mission is not to further perpetuate that corrupt autocracy, but to, to put sunlight there and to decentralize that power, that would change things generationally. That would change things, regardless of who even succeeds him, that would change things permanently. So it's but that final hurdle of actually getting that person into the office, the system is fighting its hard, it's fighting for its life to ensure that we don't get that opportunity to put a suitable person into power. And I suspect that it's not just in Nigeria, this is taking place across Africa. I suspect it's a similar situation even in Ghana. I suspect it's all it's everywhere. You know. So that and that's why I'm really so eager for Nigeria to do it. But I, I believe once Nigeria can do it, the rest of Africa will start doing it too. I believe that Nigeria really should be like 200 million people. You can't not lead the way. Like you can't have 200 million people who are like 200 million zombies. No, there has to be. They have to show some leadership. So I believe if if Nigeria can do it, that in its you know the way when there's a coup. In one country, there's a coup in the next, there's a contagion. I believe something similar can happen. If there is a, I don't want to use the word coup, but if there's a, if there's that insertion of correct leadership in Nigeria, I think there'll be, there'll be a contagious effect on its neighbors and around the continent. So that's really what I'm looking forward to. I really want this to happen because once it happens, it's not just Nigeria that is going to change permanently. It's the continent. It's the, the life that we have is going to be different. So, I mean, time will tell. Time will tell. Time will tell. The Change Africa podcast is produced by Isaac Abua and Daniel Murky. It is executive produced by Tim Yastratus, the theme music and digital production is by Daniel Quay and graphic design by Andrew Ayi. This podcast is a production of Nexa Media. Music